Hello everyone, this is David Goldsmith, and welcome to the Age of Infinite. Throughout history, we've seen humanity undergo transformational shifts that are so impactful they define entire ages. Just recently, we lived through the information age, and what an incredible journey it's been. Now think about this, you could be very well on the, in the midst of another monumental shift, the transformation into the Age of Infinite. We're talking about an age that transcends the concepts of scarcity and abundance. It introduces a lifestyle rich with infinite possibilities, established by a new paradigm that links the moon and the earth into a term we call mirth. This synergy will create a new ecosystem and an economic model, propelling us into an era of infinite possibilities. It does sound like a plot for an extraordinary sci-fi story, but this is the story you'll see unfold in your lifetime. This podcast is brought to you by the Project Moon Hut Foundation. We look to establish a box with a roof and a door on the moon. By the way, we were named by NASA. That's how we got the name. Through the accelerated development of an Earth and space-based ecosystem. Then to turn the innovations and the paradigm-shifting thinking from the endeavor back on Earth to improve how we live on Earth for all species. For more information, you go to our website, www.projectmoonhut.org, where you can check out our 40-year plan, the work we're working on, and so much more. There is a lot being generated on that website. As a matter of fact, you should check out the, four, uh, the Project Moon Hot classification system right under the 40-year plan. Absolutely amazing work by the team. We are a nonprofit, so while you're there, consider making a donation by clicking on the button up on top. So let's dive into our podcast today. The name, the title of the program today is, What Will It Take to Get Back to the Moon? And today we have another fabulous guest with us. We have Andrew Chaikin. How are you, Andrew? I'm very well, David. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to it. So as always, we do a very brief bio. Andrew is an independent space historian, best known as the author of A Man on the Moon, The Voyages of the Apollo Astronauts. He's a visiting instructor at NASA since 2010, a member of the geology and geophysics imaging team of the New Horizons missions to Pluto and to the Kuiper Belt. He's also a member of NASA's Engineering Safety Center's Human Factors Technological Discipline Team. I barely can get that out. He is a recipient of two NASA Group Achievement Awards and a recipient of the American Astronautical Society's Ordway Award for Sustainable Excellence in Space History. Those are a lot of tongue twisters in there. So <laughs> be, before we start, and this, we've had to add this only because individuals have commented that I know what's going on in this interview, that how do I come up with all these questions? Let me be clear to you, and Andrew can attest to this. I know nothing about what Andrew's going to talk about. He and I, and every guest since that have been on a program, we get on and we discuss the title of the topic. We don't go into any depth. I don't have any of the content. Then Andrew is allowed to go out. He does his own thing. He comes up with his own program. And this is the first time I'm hearing anything. I do not know where he's going. I don't know what he's going to cover. I've not heard the bullet points. This is live. I have a piece of paper in front of me. And, and during a typical interview, I take 13 to 17 pages of notes. So I'm live with you learning at the same time you are asking real questions in real time. So let's get started. Andrew, do you like it, Andy or Andrew? Andy's fine. Okay, because I just looked in the bottom of your corner of your screen, and it said yeah, it's, Andy. Uh, okay, it's Andrew in print, but Andy to friends and 
And so uh, I've become a friend, is what you're saying. I've 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 crossed over that. You're on the inside, David. <laughs> okay. So uh, Andy, do you have an outline or a set of bullet points for us? I do, and I want to say before we even start that this has been a very interesting and rewarding process for me because I the stuff I'm going to talk about today I've been teaching at NASA and other places like the Missile Defense Agency since 2016. So I have a lot of miles uh, on the on the odometer talking about this stuff, but having to come up with these bullet points really was interesting and rewarding because it got me to think about communicating this material in a different way. So I'm really glad that we that we're doing this. The the I have found and you're not the only person who has said this journey, and I think you had about two months, but this journey for a typical uh, guest on any of the podcasts, and we've done over about 400 since I've started doing this process, almost every guest said, I had to rethink things. I had to change the verbiage. I had to change the, the direction in which I normally deliver it. And uh, we've had people after a program I shared with you just earlier, I would say, you got to send this to me. I have a book deadline tomorrow or the next day. He said, <laughs> I need to add things in here I've never said before. So that's <laughs> great. So I'm glad I'm glad you had an experience with it. I wasn't sure if you were going to like me or not, but at least we're this far. So, <laughs> yeah. so let's go over the, uh, the bullet points. How many do you have so I know? I have seven bullet points. Okay. Number one, the first one, please. Rocket science is not enough. Rocket science is not enough. Number two. The stories we tell ourselves. Stories we tell ourselves. Number three. Beware the reality distortion field. <laughs> reality distortion field number four understand the risks stand the risks number five number five is beware us versus them thinking versus them thinking number six Awareness has a shelf life. Has a shelf life. And number seven. Proper paranoia. <laughs> paranoia. Proper Sometimes paranoia. people give me words that I, I just don't know how to spell, so I'm glad <laughs> that I can. I think I spell paranoia properly. All right, so let's dig in. Let's start with number one. Sure. Um, actually, before I do that, I wanted to just say a little bit about my path and how I got to this point, because I didn't okay. start out looking at the stuff I'm going to talk about. And I, I don't think that out. when you and I spoke last time, you gave me a lot of your history. So this is great. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I mean, David, you're, you've said very clearly and, and repeatedly, you're not a space guy. Um, and I'm glad that I have a chance to to uh, interact with you about this material because your reactions will be, you know, very instructive to me. I am a space guy from the time I was a little kid. I mean, I grew up with it. 
I was five years old when Alan Shepard and Yuri Gagarin, actually not in that order, the other order, the reverse order, <laughs> became the first humans in space. And I was just captivated by the idea of going to another world. I had picture books with what it would be like to walk on the moon or go to Mars or float in the rings of Saturn, all of that stuff. When I went to well, school... I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, let me just break in for a minute because yeah. I, it's a question... I say I'm not a space guy. You've you heard that in the first time we met. I've told that to people all the time. I don't sit here and look up all the time. I I do admire people who've done the work, but I look I like the grass. I like the, going outside. I like Earth. I guess is the way to say it. When you say not mutually exclusive, though, by the way. Right, right. Well, yes. I love when people will say, well, <laughs> we're going to the moon, and they talk it as a, like a, a celestial body. We're on a celestial body. Exactly. You, know, you, you, can't, you, can't you can't say one is a celestial body and we're not. You can't use the word lunar because we have to talk properly about the lunar. Well, when you pick up dirt outside, do you call it terraforma? No, and you're, you're, you're uh, articulating something that I feel very strongly about and that I think is one of the great gifts of being interested in astronomy and space exploration, which is I go outside and I love the grass too, and I love the blue sky, but I always am aware that beyond that blue sky is a universe, and it's so cool. I love that. I, love I just, I, I, what I was gonna ask you was that trigger, like why are some people, I guess it could be fashion or dance or music or whatever category it is, but that feeling of being in awe that made you pursue it. Yeah. I just would love to understand the biological, the psychological, the sociological components of how someone becomes in you so know, much love. You know I, what I'm asking. I can only tell you that it was, it was in me from a very, very early age. I mean, I literally remember it going back to when I was five years old. And I don't know what put it there other than the fact that maybe my my mom got me a book about space. I, 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 you know, and then I started taking them out of the library. I don't know. And, you know, I've heard people, I've heard space people say that trying to explain this to a person that doesn't feel it is pointless. It's like the the Louis Armstrong, they, this is what they said to me. It's like Louis Armstrong's quote about jazz. If you have to ask, baby, you'll never know. But I have seen people become awed by looking at the moon through a telescope for the first time in their lives, seeing the pictures that we get from the space probes, hearing an astronaut talk about what it was like to walk on the moon. Those things can awaken that awe or just well, well, a, but that's no different than anything if i if you don't like carpentry and then i yeah. showed you the nuances of carpentry or if, if you're not a good dancer and you had a good instructor and next thing you know you were able to have a dance with your daughter for a wedding and you you really did it you say oh my god yes. i didn't know i i love dance this much so that that eye opening side of it is the challenge is how do you get that eye opening and and that's a challenge that you know is part of our obligation if we believe in this, we have to be able to spark that in our audience. So I've worked on it continuously for all of my adult life. I've been in this business of communicating space since I stopped being a planetary science researcher in 1980 and became a science journalist. 
Um, so just maybe maybe one day, maybe one day I will wake up and have that. It's been um, a long time. Hey, you know, um, maybe the day that you actually get to spend your first night sleeping in the moon hut, you know? You know, um, I, I don't even think about it. I just know that we have to do it. So let's go back. Let's hear your history. It. Give me give me some things about your history so that we can understand. So, I can understand you better. By the time I was in high school, college, um, the Apollo, Apollo was happening when I was in junior high and high school, and I was glued to the TV for every Apollo mission, and I was really. So, so you're in the fi- you're about fifth in the fifties. Well, I I was thirteen in 1969 when Apollo 11 landed on the moon. So okay. I was born in 1956. So okay. I wanted to be an astronaut more than anything. And I was watching these missions, wishing I could just, you know, become part of the Apollo program somehow at age 13. <laughs> and I, by the time I was in high school, the robotic missions were kicking into high gear. We were starting to get unbelievable pictures back from the Mars Orbiter, Mariner 9. We had rocks from the moon that geologists were looking at. You know, the, the Mariner pictures of Mars were showing us volcanoes three times higher than Mount Everest and canyons the length of the United States and ancient river valleys and all kinds of wonders. And I said, I want to be a planetary geologist because that is, I've always, I've always been a science person as well as somebody who's very turned on by art. In fact, it was the artwork in my childhood astronomy books that really sparked my interest more than anything. But I was also very fascinated by science. So I decided to study geology in college. And as luck would have it, um, well, not luck, I consciously applied to Brown University because, uh, and I got in and my advisor was the, was the leader of the camera team for the Viking Mars landers. So I ended up being an intern on the Viking mission at the Jet Propulsion Lab um, three summers in a row, including the summer of those landings, Viking 1 and Viking 2. And a really interesting thing happened, David. It was unbelievable to be in inside for a mission like that, see the first pictures come back from the surface of Mars. But I realized as I watched the scientists at work that I wasn't sure that I wanted to do that. You know, I love I love the subject. I've never lost my love of the subject. But did I want to be a practicing scientist day to day? I was too much kind of split between left brain and right brain. I I had too much going on with a desire to do uh, space art. I was becoming a amateur singer songwriter. I was thinking, geez, maybe I'd like to do that. Um, And I didn't know what I wanted to do for a while. I mean, it took a few years after college before I landed, and I had spent about a year and a half as a planetary science researcher at the Air and Space Museum in DC, but I finally, almost by luck, became a science journalist in 1980 at a magazine called Sky and Telescope, which is very well known to amateur astronomers. And from there, you know, this was kind of a renaissance or a boom in, in uh, science journalism at that time in the early 80s, I started writing for other magazines. By 1984, I really was setting my sights on writing a book. And what I landed on was a book about the Apollo astronauts. I wanted to know, I still was so smitten with that 
Apollo experience and I wanted to understand it. I wanted to get inside it. I wanted to know what was it like to go to the moon, to actually walk on another world or orbit another world for the first time in human history. And how did it affect the 24 people who got to do that? So that's when I started working in, in 1984 on A Man on the Moon. It took me, well, from 1984, it was about 10 years before it came out. And it took, part of that was just, num number one, getting the astronauts to talk to me. Yeah. But part of it, I have to say, was learning to become a storyteller that would live up to the amazing material that I was writing about. And that was as much a reason why it took eight years as anything else. Um, so in the process of writing A Man on the Moon, I turned myself into a space historian. I already knew about the geology of the moon, so I was able to comprehend the science. I basically had, I had a basic understanding of the technology and I learned a lot more. I was already sensitive to human behavior and was, of course, that was very helpful in interviewing the astronauts about their experiences and their relationships with each other and so on. To the, and all of this was in the service of being a storyteller that I could tell a compelling story. So I, I'm going to, what's the one, what's the biggest surprise? Doesn't have to be a story you've told yeah. before. Because it actually wouldn't be. Something where you've kind of never really shared it was the thing where you said, wow, I never even thought about that. What would be that one out of all of the interviews you've done? Well, it's actually true of many of them. Um, not all of them, but many of them. I had... I had been thinking about this so much and I had been imagining myself going to the moon and I just was sure that if you got to go to the moon that it would be what I called a, a zap, you know, that it would yeah. blow every fuse in your head for a while and, you know, you'd, you'd be carrying around that zap inside of you for the rest of your life. And what I found was with a few exceptions, a cut, really just a handful of exceptions, it was not really that kind of a zap for these guys. They were first yeah. and foremost professionals. They were uh, doing this because they were the best at being test pilots, fighter pilots, and they were given this job that had tremendous importance to the nation, and they were all very, all but one of them had been military, and, and that was very important to them. They did experience awe on the flights. I don't want to paint them as people who were not of course. receptive to the experience, but several of them said to me, it didn't change me. I'm the same guy I was before I went. Now the exceptions, and you may have heard of Ed Mitchell, who founded the I, Institute for Noetic Sciences and was extremely interested in the nature of consciousness. He talked about a consciousness raising experience that he had looking at the earth as Apollo 14 headed home from the moon. And that was a really interesting aspect of my book. Then Jim Irwin... But, but, but let me, I'm, I'm, I want to, yeah. for you, not yeah. what they, so you heard all these stories. Yes. 
what was the thing for you then that was, I mean, you just mentioned this reality, this realization that it wasn't as big. It was a big deal. I'm not trying to downplay it, but it was just another human going through another experience. What did that do to you? It was frustrating to a lot of the time. And I, and I, you, you wanted to find like the, you wanted to find the diamond and you ended up finding yeah, just you know, normal, but it, normal but, digging. But, but, you know, I also came to understand, hey, my job here is not to impose my preconceptions on this experience. My job is to tell the story of how it really was for these guys. And I think however it ends up being, it's an incredibly rich story because even if you're talking about a test pilot who's just devoted to the checklist, that guy is still one of the first humans to leave the earth and go to another world. And by the way, he's experiencing his own moments of but awe. That, that's my point. You are, you are putting on top of these individuals your expectations. Right. But the, and that's why I was, that's why I was kind of digging to hear if you found something. And I'll, it's a very short story. I'm with a multi-billionaire. He asked me to go out and have some dinner as because I had been working with them and we sit down and we're talking. And at one person, at one point, he just looks at me, he says, I work late at night. And I'm looking at him like, I'm not sure how to respond. And I said, why do you work late at night? And he has 100, it's, you know, it's 50,000, 100,000 employees, whatever the number was, I don't remember. And he said to me, why, I work late at night because if I work late at night, Others will work late at night. <laughs> and it wasn't about making money. It was about a work ethic that he thought if he stayed and worked late at night, others would work late at night. And when you, when you hear that from an individual who's got billions, I stopped and said, like I have many times with individuals I've met around the world, I've said, just like us, the same different challenges, different obstacles overcome. He's working till seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 o'clock at night, just so that 50,000 other people will work late at night, not for money, because he thinks that's the best way to run the organization. Yeah. And you're, you're, you're taken aback for a moment and you're saying to yourself, okay, wait, what just happened here? And I didn't put him on a pedestal. I'd been working with him already, but that was an out of the blue quest, uh, comment. So in your case, did that influence what you heard from these people in this matter matter of fact nothing ha you know it wasn't as big did that have an influence on the activities that you were engaged in or the way you presented your content or the way you looked at your life well i'm i'm happy to say that i was able to come to this realization pretty early on in the writing pro in the research and writing process while i was still interviewing these guys i came to that realization and so okay. i adjusted and you know there might still be a moment here and there where i would be you know trying to get something out of them that i wasn't getting and by the way there were others who yeah they were they were still test pilots or fire pilots but they were very expressive about the amazingness of the experience right, right it's the type of thing you're having a conversation he says yeah that was cool but but you know in seven years ago i was doing this flyby and i was doing this and i was flipping inverted you're going so he's excited about well that. i have to tell you something i have to tell you something dave's let's just take one guy and i won't i promise i won't take up a lot of time with this no, no it's okay so apollo 15 
it's the first of the kind of full-up science expeditions. They had a, a lunar rover for the first time. They had an upgraded lunar lander. They had enough supplies to stay for three full days on the surface of the moon. So, you know, they did three moonwalks for the first time. They went miles over the surface in this lunar rover. They went to the edge of a ginormous lunar canyon. They went up the sides of, of lunar mountains and one of the rocks they picked up dated back almost to the formation of the moon. It was nicknamed the Genesis Rock. The commander of that mission was an Air Force test pilot named Dave Scott. Dave was phenomenal. He was a phenomenal interview. I spent, you know, six, two sessions, each of which lasted hours, hours and hours at a restaurant in Los Angeles. Um, it was amazing to hear him talk not only about his experiences on the moon, but his perspective and how he taught me things about flying, like how you fly in, in lunar gravity, which is different from flying anything else, because the gravity being one-sixth and you don't have an atmosphere, all you have is the thrust of your rocket engine to, to let you steer. So you got yep. you got to tilt to one side. <laughs> to get some of that thrust pointed off in the direction you want to go. And then you got to tilt the other way to stop. I mean, it was just fascinating. So I went through that experience. I wrote the, the chapter on Apollo 15. And a, a couple of years later, a few years later, oh, gosh, five years later by this time. So the interviews were in 1987, and now I'm at Dave Scott's house in 1992. And we're going over the chapter, which was great. So I had these guys look at what I wrote, and they told me what I had where I had screwed up and where I had missed a nuance here that they wanted to, you know, illuminate, you know. And at one point, we're reading, we're going through the section where he's setting up, they're setting up their experiments on the moon, and there was a styrofoam packing material. Uh, no, it wasn't styrofoam. It was some kind of pallet that one of the experiments had been sitting on. And Dave decided he was going to have some fun. And he spun around and threw it in this one-sixth gravity. And, of course, it's being captured by the rover TV camera and everybody can see it. But he almost fell over. And he said to me, you know, it was funny because the mass of the backpack, I started to spin around and I thought I was going to fall over. But the yeah. mass of the backpack kept going in this spin. And it brought me <laughs> yeah, back it didn't on stop. my feet. No, it brought me back <laughs> on my feet. I could put my feet under me. And I had this moment of just, oh, my God, he's telling me about something that happened to him on the moon one day. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. That's and in that a, moment, he, he, those moments <laughs> were the gold for me personally. Those moments that, were that's the, the gold. That's the human side. I, I did look him up. I didn't, he did Apollo, Gemini 8, Apollo 9, Apollo 15, 91 yeah. years old today. Yeah. Uh, to date. No, June and 2nd he, is his birthday. Yeah. And he's still alive, so maybe oh, we yeah. can get him on the program. And oh, I don't want to say that in a negative he, way. He doesn't like to do the. He doesn't like to do. No, these okay. But, he, uh, but I'm just saying that there were these. What, what surprised me? You yeah. know, I didn't know about any of these things. You said lunar rover, lunar lander, three full days moonwalk over the canyon, the lunar mountains, agenda. I didn't know any of these things. Oh, it's 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 amazing. And you see, when I wrote the book, a lot of people didn't know we went back to the moon after Apollo 11. So. I had a feeling that And I, that's a big point, yeah. if you think about it. And I wanted to with, tell these stories. Partly that was one of the reasons I wanted to do it, because I, I really felt that we'd lost touch with this incredible adventure. 
But so let me just let me just get you up to yep. now. So the book came out in 1994. Um, the the book was read by Tom Hanks while he was making Apollo 13. He called me. I had a chance to visit the set of Apollo 13 a couple of times, the Ron Howard movie, and Hanks yep. was playing Jim Lovell. And we, we kind of connected there. He's a, he was a space fan when he was my age. We're the same age. And when he was a kid, he was a space fan. He called me the following year and got me in on the ground floor of what became a 12-part miniseries based largely on my book for HBO. That was my Hollywood moment. <laughs> and then, you know, I, I wrote a few more books. And the thing that really got me to here was in 2010, I was... I had been asked by NASA to teach their engineers a course on space history. And one of the people who took the course was a guy from the Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland named Ed Rogers, who was the, what they called the, the chief knowledge officer, which sounds like Star Trek. But it meant that he was the keeper of the lessons learned. And he kind of drew me into his world. And before I knew it, he and his boss, the center director, were asking me to put down on paper, quote unquote, how we do this stuff. And this was 2011. And ever since then, I have been delving into writing, researching, teaching the human behavior lessons on success and failure in spaceflight projects. And it's, I never would have thought that I would be in this field, in this endeavor, I'm not a social scientist. I'm a space historian trained in planetary science, but I have immersed myself in the behaviors that got us to the moon and the lessons from the accidents that NASA has, has experienced. And that's uh, and, what I'm going to talk about today. All, all, and you are focused on uh, U.S. You, or are you a, moon hist or a space historian, meaning you're covering what the Chinese do and what the Japanese do and what the Russians do, or are you focused, you know the question, which yeah. uh, is it just one or is it uh, global? To do this job, to really do this right, you have to delve so deeply. You have to be able to hear directly from the participants. You have to be able to really get inside what people were thinking, what was motivating them, why they made the decisions they made. So I... Confess, I have not had the time and bandwidth to stray outside of NASA's history other than I have done some delving into SpaceX. Not enough to teach it at the same level, but I, that will come. I will be doing that uh, in the near future. But no, it has. I went back to Apollo, David, because Apollo is really the closest thing we've ever had to a perfect program. It was not perfect but it was the closest thing we've ever had. And so it is a beautiful lesson in not only success, but in recovering from tragedy, because you may know that they killed the first Apollo crew yeah. in a, a fire in the capsule while it was still on the launch pad. So human behavior got them off track and led to that accident. But human behavior- So, so, when, so when you're looking at Project Moon High- Yeah. <laughs> Talking about fires in the hall and the and hatch. Uh, yeah. Now I understand when you got on your your facial reactions, and I can't see you now, but your facial reactions when you started talking about Project Moon Hut, I was keying into them because you had 
I don't know. I felt like, and I didn't really, I don't do research on people like people would think that I would do. You had a sense of the fascination was in the architecture of what we're working on and how we're trying to do it. And mm -hmm. we are doing it. So I thought that I, I kind of got that sense out of you. And well, we, we, do, we, we do record all of our, our calls. So we have thousands of hours. Well, of I would say, calls. yeah, and that would be very, that would be very interesting. You know, when you, when you actually put something on the moon, come back to me, because <laughs> then it'll be space history. <laughs> uh, but, but no, I'm, I'm, hey, man, I'm fascinated by all of it. I'm fascinated by what motivates people to do these things from the beginning. I'm fascinated by how they think up the concepts. I'm fascinated mm -hmm. by how they do it and make it happen. I'm fascinated by what happens to them when they go. I mean, the whole, all of the dimensions and facets of this subject matter are fascinating to me. And I never they used don't. to think I would be interested in, you know, management to me was always a, a snooze. But I have to say, when you get into the behaviors that got us to the moon for the first time in human history, by God, management can be really captivating and gripping because you realize oh. you're seeing decisions that people make that will have tremendous positive or negative consequences. And it's interesting that you say that because individuals don't understand the complexity of a decision just based in business. You know, I yes. think I sent you a copy of our book that took 12 years to write is that the one decision you make has ripple effects across the ecosystem. But the hard part for people to understand is when someone articulates it, they tend to forget the things around them that made that happen. So for example, yes. they forget that they had a bad drive into work that day or that there was a power outage in the morning or that they had a bad night's sleep or they fought with a child two days earlier and they're pretty upset and, or they didn't do their homework. And they tell you the story that they remember but the situation that happened around them is far more complex. And, and I'm sharing that only because there are many days, today was one of them, I woke up and said, I don't even know why the hell I'm even involved in this. <laughs> this is just so much freaking work. It is a Sunday we're doing this, and we normally have five hours of meetings on Saturdays regularly scheduled. And it's just so much freaking work that I, oh. Yeah. Oh, so I, I do wake up plenty, plenty days and say, I, I don't want this anymore. And I don't know why I keep on coming back. So the, the fact that your, your reaction, again, prior to our starting was just interesting uh, on this case. Well, so let's get back I, to... I, but I do want to say, David, don't put too much weight on what you perceived from my facial expression, because as I say, it's all fascinating, potentially. <laughs> Well, I look, you sometimes, and, and this is what uh, I'm going to say a child might perceive, is that by having people around you who have an awe or a sense of enlightenment or a sense of interest, it does change the dynamic of the rest of the day. Hmm. And I woke up, I, you know, I'm, I'm asking myself why. I'm, I'm walking around in, in the bedroom and downstairs, and I'm saying, oh, this is just ridiculous amount of work. And everybody's questioning everything you're questioning, your, your decisions are being made. Yes. And they're not in a bad way, but there's so many. And your facial reaction was, oh, wow. Well, maybe <laughs> we are doing something. Oh, Because you said, I went through the whole website and I saw this and I watched this video and I'm thinking, oh, yeah. oh so, 
So you there? And, and I listened to the podcast from this one. I listened to this podcast. That was a good podcast. Okay. You don't realize what that little influence had for me to start this call because uh-huh. I, I was not in a, in that loving feeling today. Okay, I, I get it. I get it. I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> so so let's get to this. Rocket science is not enough. Yeah. Which I think is a good segue to what we just completed. So <laughs> this is the funny part. You've heard enough of the podcasts already. We're now on number one. <laughs> yes, yes. So, you know, as I mentioned, I pivoted from being a space historian to being an investigator of human behavior in success and failure within the space flight world. And what I found as a historian is that when you delve into the history of spaceflight on this, through this lens... What you find is that there is a counterintuitive lesson. And the, the, the lesson is that it, you can be the best person who walked in the door when it comes into the technical stuff, when it comes to the technical stuff. You can, you know, the rocket science, quote unquote, it's actually rocket engineering, right? But, but the phrase in the language is, the common phrase is rocket science. You can be fabulous at the rocket science, but history shows that if you're not paying attention to the human piece of the system, you're not inviting success, you're inviting failure. And this is not me talking, I'm not an engineer. I, when I go into a room full of NASA engineers, I say, hey guys, you know, I'm not here to talk to you because of my great engineering acumen. I'm here to tell you what the history is screaming at us. And the history is telling us that we have to pay conscious attention to how we think about the work. That is to say, the attitudes, beliefs, and assumptions that we bring to the work. In other words, if you want a a bumper sticker for it, our mindset. And the, the thing about it is that this is not stuff that most engineers are comfortable with. I don't want to make a blanket statement, but but in general, you know, there's a joke that I heard. So we, we can make a blanket statement. We could say that mo, in your perception, what you've seen yeah. is that in the American uh, ecosystem, space ecosystem, you find this because you're basically talking about an American personality style. That may be. I've not had the chance to give this. Well, that's my point. I'm I'm trying to kind of confine it to say, I I think, you know, I've worked in over 50 countries and in each country, the minute you land, you have to know, do you go left? Do you go right? How do you read something? How do you ask for something? And it's all different uh, globally. So by you saying how we think about the work, we're talking about the idiosyncrasies of the American personality when it comes to, say, for example, NASA. Well, that's very interesting. So you're saying, so so to put it another way, the engineers that, that I deal with at NASA, at, at other agencies, they are mostly left-brained people who don't do, quote-unquote, feelings and, and behavior. Are you saying that you have experienced a different makeup abroad? I would say that the personalities of culture, individuals within cultures, bring a different type of response mechanism to everything. So I'm going to be broad brushed here. My grandfather was Russian. I'm going to tell you if you walked in into a Russian meeting, you would have a very different 
set of conditions that you'd be dealing with in terms of leadership and personality traits, and and everything the baggage that's brought along from being a youth in their uh, growing up in their society would be very different than if you're dealing with a whole set of Japanese individuals or Chinese individuals or Indonesians or individuals from from India or you know I can go I can list the countries Latvia Lithuania Estonia uh, you know you can go down the country list so the I'm saying that when you're what we're talking about that's why the question was asked much earlier do you spend much time understanding this other side these this this the rest of the world that there and you said no so I'm going to reframe this what we think about the work the mindset that's brought in but it's, it's going to be very different yeah it's going to be very, let me give you an example it's covid it's not covid it's 2011-12 I'm walking down the hallway, I'm living in Hong Kong, I'm walking down the hallway with the CEO of the largest luxury brand for a certain category in all of Hong Kong, very, very well known, worked with them for five years, and as I'm walking down the hallway to our executive meeting, he, I, make, I do a little one of these, <clears throat> and he looks at me, he says, you have a cold? <laughs> and I said, I don't know, could be one starting. He says, you want a mask? And I said, because I didn't know this at this point. This was early in the time that I started. I was in Hong Kong for 10 years. I said, sure. So he hands me a mask. And during a whole day of meetings with this executive team, we wear masks. I wear masks. Nobody else does. And what I, when COVID came about, I did a podcast and I shared with people in Asia, and I'm being broad brush here because Asia is very large, but in Asia, you wear a mask to protect others. In the United States, you wear a mask to protect yourself. Right, right, right. And you would not know that unless you had gotten down into the idiosyncrasies of that culture and spent time with them, which brings me to how we think about the work and the mindset you brought up. I don't know how they think in those rooms because I've not seen it, but I'm going to guarantee you it's different than the way it's done in America. I get it. I get it. And it has to be. Yeah. No, and I, 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 that's fascinating. And I, I hope that down the road I get the chance to travel overseas and talk about this material and learn exactly what you're talking about. There's a, the, um, Alan Mullally, who ran Ford for a period of time, he had one of these scenes where he was bringing his team into an engineer, uh, into a testing facility. And I don't know if it was external or internal. It doesn't make as much of a difference, but potentially it could because external means you'd have to respect them one way and internal you'd have a different set of respect just because of that's conditions of organizations. And the person doing the testing started to make comments about the vehicle. And immediately one of the individuals jumped in and started, well, we're doing this, da, da, da. and he said, no. First, and I'm not quoting this perfectly, first you learn to understand before you start to share what you know. Right. And he had to tell them, you're not there to tell people why it's not working. You're there to find out why, what's going on, so that you can then share your, pers your, uh, your knowledge later. And in the same case here, the hard part for you, if you're just visiting, is you won't know the idiosyncrasy, the, those little tiny things that make the culture, the culture. Does that make sense the way I say it? Absolutely, absolutely. So, but you know, even if we restrict it to NASA and, and the American aerospace arena, we're still talking about 
a subject that is so nuanced and so intricate. And at least in our world, in this country, you know, it's not something that is taught in engineering school very much, as far as I know. It's not something that, you know, there's a joke that I heard <laughs> at one of the NASA centers. How do you tell the difference between an introverted engineer and an extroverted engineer? I don't know. <laughs> the introverted engineer looks at his shoes when he talks to you. The extroverted engineer looks at your shoes. <laughs> so I walk into a room and I start talking about this stuff and I, I put them try to put them at ease to say, hey, I get it. This is not your comfort zone. But what I have come to understand about spaceflight is that it is a high wire walk. It is that unforgiving. That's the analogy I use. And to stay on the high wire requires sometimes that we step outside our comfort zone. And I will say more about this as we go on. So what I've done- By the way, I'm gonna tell you, the quote was something such as, seek first to understand, then to be understood. I love it, I love it. You know, they, they and, at NASA they say, you can't be on transmit all the time. You have to be on receive mode, you know. Well, it's our culture, American culture, and I'm going to be very broad brush here, compared to other cultures around the world, is much more aggressive yeah. in their style of uh, communication. Now, I would say that I'm going to use, I'm using very broad brush here, so can't get, hopefully not in trouble with this. You know, when you deal with a Russian, and I, I worked in Moscow, worked in St. Petersburg, amazing people there. Again, my family, I'm a, a Russian background is Russians fight to fight, because that's part of the culture. Israelis fight for a long time, and then they say, yeah, but we're just friends. Every culture has their nuances. So I love this with the, um, the introvert and the extrovert. Yeah. So that's perfect. Yeah, yeah. And so how do you when, you, when you say that to your groups, what is their first reaction? Oh, they laugh because they get the joke. They know what I'm talking about. And they get the fact that, you know, this is not something that they usually talk about. And I, what I've done is I've extracted a framework to talk about behaviors that invite success or practices. I call them success behaviors or success ingredients. I also talk about in behaviors that invite failure. And, and in the case of the high wire walker, it's like we're wearing a blindfold and we're out on the high wire wearing a blindfold. But those, the blindfold is elements of our human nature that are kind of hardwired into us and we have to rise above them to stay on the high wire. And that requires that we go outside our comfort zone and pay conscious attention to our attitudes, beliefs, and assumptions, our mindset. Okay, so. What comes to mind is this. What has changed in the past 20 years in terms of the American space ecosystem? Uh, and I th you're more or less talking NASA, but uh, I guess the, the complex. What has changed that you see as positive and what have you changed that has seen as potentially negative? So it, the positive change and the negative change both stem from the same development, which is that the rise of new space companies, new space is a term that's used in the world of, of aerospace to denote uh, companies with, with atypical cultures compared to the old 
aerospace companies or, or NASA, the startup cultures and so forth. So the rise of companies like SpaceX. On the positive side, there's been tremendous innovation, right? I mean, way back in 2010, uh, uh, an astronaut who had recently retired from NASA wrote an op-ed in the New York Times that I thought was very well expressed about why NASA has had been slow, relatively slow in its progress compared to the old days. And, you know, because just to give you the, the cliff notes on this, I mean, in 2010, uh, the International Space Station had been in continuous operation for a little more than a decade, and they were still building it, and, you know, a lot of the resources of the agency were going into flying the shuttle so that they could finish building the space station. Of course, the shuttle was going to stop flying in 2011. So my, my friend, this former astronaut, wrote this op-ed, and he said, in order to, he said, the problem with NASA is that Congress approves something like the space shuttle and then says, this is the only vehicle you're going to get for 20 or 30 years. You've got to just keep flying the same vehicle. And he said, if you can't iterate, you can't innovate. And the difference with companies like SpaceX was this startup culture where they said, hey, we don't care if the rocket blows up a few times before we get to success. Now, at some point, they, they really did care because they were about to go bankrupt and go out of business. And then fortunately, the Falcon 1 worked before that happened. Um, but they understood you've got to fail before you can succeed. But the problem with NASA is that politically, the cost of failure is very high because it's Congress, it's a very publicly visible endeavor, and people don't necessarily understand what I just said, which is that you got, you know, like you saw the, maybe you, maybe you didn't, but you've heard about the Starship. The new vehicles, yeah, yeah. right? Blew up. <laughs> I, 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 just, just you know, my day, yeah. my day is all beyond Earth. Not beyond Earth is all Project Moon Hat. So from start to finish, morning to night, yeah. we've got ITAR, EAR, Cepheus. We've got uh, new technologies for the moon. We got, we've got models being built. I mean, we've, but we've also got platforms and immersive technologies and all of that happening. So, no, I, I hear about all this. I do yeah. watch them. And one of our teammates, uh, his name, uh, Andreas Bergweiler, has a YouTube channel. He had Facebook, but they all sorts of Facebooks just had challenges. He does all the streaming. So every single launch that happens around the world that he can, he streams it. So I hear about it, every one of them. Okay. So you, you, you knew... You saw it when Starship blew up the first time. You saw it when yep. it blew up. I saw the ground being completely destroyed yeah. and, and things being tossed miles away. Yeah. And yes, all of that. Right. And then the second launch, they did much better, but it still mm -hmm. was not, they didn't reach orbit. And, you know, people say, oh, they failed again. Well, yeah, but look at the progress they made, the tremendous data that they're going to be able to use to make it even better. And yeah, there I think there were some dumb mistakes, like not putting down a better platform the first time so you wouldn't be raining concrete all over the, the whole area, right? But what I want to say about 
the last 20 years. Well, I, I'm gonna start, no, it, see, I would I rephrase that. I'm going to bet you that the people who built it assumed, and I'm not saying good or bad, but they made the they had a belief that what they build would work. So you're saying they should have, and I'm saying no. In the conditions that were happening, they said, why don't we pour this? Why don't we create this? Why don't we set it up like this? This will be great. No one wanted it to pour concrete down or have concrete come down like rain. No, nobody. So it see, wasn't, it, 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 they just did it but, and they thought it would work. Yeah, but, but, but you're, putting exact, you're putting your finger right on the reason I teach this stuff, which is that, we have to pay attention to the lessons of the past and what people did in the past. Now, it doesn't mean we imitate them blindly, but every failure that happens, we're not, you know, as long as we're talking about a professional organization with a, you know, a high degree of, of, of talent on, on board, we're not talking about people who are stupid or incompetent. We're talking about people who are very smart. Well, but was there a history? Was there a history of raining concrete anywhere? Let me finish the sentence. Sure. We're not talking about people who are stupid or incompetent. We're talking about very smart, well-meaning people who suffered catastrophic failure because of flawed mindsets. Now, in this case, there was an assumption on, as far as I know, and I can't, I don't claim to have delved into this in great detail, but my understanding is that that Elon Musk basically said. Yeah, we should be okay with just concrete. Well, they didn't have a water suppression system, which is yep. what they used on the Saturn V, which was much less powerful than Starship. And so, you know, okay, guys, right there. I think I'm right about this. Somebody may write in and say, ah, Chaykin didn't you know they had a water suppression system. The point is- No, I, they didn't have, a, as far as I know, they didn't have a water suppression system. Yeah, so, Absolutely. so you know, it's- one of my failure in ingredients is hubris, overconfidence. And I'm not saying that you can always avoid an accident, but it, you're more likely to avoid it if you say, are we being overconfident? Well, but that's not, what. again, the way you just shared it, I didn't see it as that. I saw that as, uh, I don't want to get in trouble by the boss who does have ah, a temper or will get things his way. That's a whole other question, though. Culture. And that is why it happened. So it wasn't the, it could have been that there were people there who said, this is not going to work. And we don't, we're going to have some issues. We don't know the but answer. No one's going to bring that up. Right. We don't know the answer. And if I ever had a chance to delve into that, I would very much want to know the answer to what you just raised. And that's why I said earlier, we don't know the conditions around the condition absolutely. that made that thing happen. But, but so you we get one me, perspective. But all of this is, no, you're absolutely right. But, but, but all of this came from your question about what's changed in the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. So all I was trying to say is that I think the rise of companies like SpaceX has been a, a, net, a, a, a tremendous positive for the level of, of innovation and iteration the negative is that if you're NASA and you're trying to do something like send humans back to the moon with the Artemis program and you contract out the capsule that takes the astronauts from Earth orbit from the surface of the Earth to Earth orbit or or onto a flight path to go to the environment of the moon or you contract out for the the lander which is SpaceX, that's what Starship is going to do for Artemis. It's going to be the lander. 
you, you NASA, no longer have the ability to look into the organization necessarily and see how they're doing their work, what kinds of practices they're using, what their test data is like. Back in Apollo, the engineers at NASA were in many cases more knowledgeable than the contractors who had never done anything like this. Today, that, that balance may or may not be, be the same, but NASA has lived through a lot. But they don't always get the opportunity to tell the contractors what they're, you know, to, to be able to get, get the contractors to listen to that experience or to share the data of their testing and so forth. ITAR and all of that gets in the way. So it's made it much harder for the people at NASA who are trying to, you know, go back to the moon. You know, I, I, I'm going to give an analogy, and I don't know what it's called. You probably do. You know, at the, um, it's at the southern tip of Africa, I believe it is, where the waters don't mix. Oh. I, There's two sets of water. Yeah. Um, there's a, a water mix at uh, wait, South uh, Africa. The water is on one side, it's one salination. The other is on the other because of the, it's warmer and it's saltier and they don't mix. I wonder, the reason I asked the question because I was trying to find out what you thought on it was that there's probably a, as much as we'd like to believe that there's a cross, uh, a crossover between agency work and commercial work or agency and uh, for-profit organizations. I would bet you it's still a lot of the this lack of understanding and lack of uh, incentivization and lack of leadership skill sets to be able to make that crossover as powerful as it probably needs to be. Well, it's a very complex subject, and I I'm hesitant to I'm hesitant to make statements about it uh, before I've had a chance to really delve into the details and. I hear things that, uh, that that alert me to the difficulties like I just described yeah. because, you know, cor companies are motivated by different things than government agencies. They're motivated by we've got to compete, we've got to make a profit. Um, and so, you know, but nevertheless, I think by and large, you know, the people I talked to at NASA have very positive things to say about SpaceX. They've been through experiences where they had a really significant failure and they learned from it with NASA's help. Um, but we're, we're, we're talking SpaceX, we're talking uh, Blue Origin, we're talking Firefly, we're talking Astrobotics, we're talking Relativity Space. I mean, there, there are a lot of moving pieces. Sure. And I wonder if we look, went across the ecosystem. You know, SpaceX is going to do, what, 150 well, flights this year? And uh, Rocket Labs, I, I, don't quote me, a dozen? No. I, so I wonder how that goes across the entire and, ecosystem. And, you know, I'd, I'd love to be able to, to, like I say, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I'd love to be able to, to go into a, a place like SpaceX and, and talk about this material and see what they what it looks like from their side. When we get our interview, I'll ask for you. How does that? <laughs> I'll see if we can get you in. So so, so when you say so, rocket science is not enough. Yeah. Where do you where do you take us then? 
What's what's the enough? Well, no. In other words, rocket science is essential, but but the human behavior piece is also essential. But what's the when you say human behavior? Give me a little bit more. What do you well, expect from me, this new generation? Let me keep going. Let me sure. Let me keep going with with our with our bullet points because I think um, this will we'll this it. will come out of the developer, as they say. Okay, so we're on to two the stories we tell ourselves. Yeah. So th this is really something that that reflects a basic aspect of us as human beings, that we are storytellers by nature. We tell ourselves stories as part of the way that we make sense of the world, way, the way we make sense of what happens to us. And history shows us that we have to consciously examine the stories we tell ourselves about the work, about each other, about ourselves too, because those stories have the power to skew our perceptions, such as our perceptions of risk, and they can influence our decisions, including our technical decisions. So just to give you a couple of examples. So one example relates to the Apollo fire, which happened in 1967 before we had flown any Apollo missions. And the crew of the first Apollo mission, uh, Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee, were going through a practice countdown uh, in their Apollo command module uh, on the pad, and nobody thought it was a hazardous test. There was no fuel in the booster, that kind of thing. But they were sealed in that command module in a pure oxygen environment at more than 16 pounds per square inch. And suddenly there was a flash fire, and they died, and it completely caught NASA by surprise. And I have delved in really, really uh, great detail into the human behavior roots of that accident. And just to name two of the stories that they told themselves before that accident, one was that their, their whole fire prevention strategy in Apollo was based on the belief that they could eliminate all potential ignition sources. That is to say, uh, damaged wiring. And that obviously was not the case, right? And if you think about it, I mean, you can't, you can't do that. It was only after the accident that they realized, what were we thinking? There's no way that you can, because you can't even tell if there's a wire that's hidden from view to inspectors behind an instrument panel. You can't necessarily detect by any of your instrumentation that there's a flaw in that wire. Um, the other thing that they told themselves, the story that they told themselves, decision makers believed that because they had never had a fire in the little Mercury or Gemini capsules that had flown up to this time, they'd never had a fire in those capsules in pure oxygen. And so they told themselves it was unlikely that they'd have a fire in Apollo. But that ignored some really significant differences between those little capsules and the Apollo command module, which was big enough for the very first time for people to move around in, including technicians, while the thing was being checked out. And there were exposed wire bundles that were vulnerable to damage by that activity. 
So it was only after the accident that they realized they'd been telling themselves a story that didn't hold up. Okay, that's, that's one example. Mm -hmm. The other example has to do with both of the shuttle accidents, Challenger, which blew up during launch in 1986, and Columbia, which disintegrated during reentry in 2003. What I've found in my delving into those accidents is that both of them stemmed from a narrative that NASA bought into long before the shuttle started flying in 1981. Way back in the early 70s, they bought into a narrative. In fact, even before the shuttle was approved, they were kind of coerced into this narrative that said that the shuttle was going to make spaceflight routine and affordable, which meant that they had, the way the economics worked, you have a fixed program cost, how do you make it competitive, cost competitive with the throwaway boosters? Well, you got to fly a lot, right? You got to have very high launch mm -hmm. rates. They were talking about flying 55 times a year. And yet, they didn't design a vehicle to do that. They didn't design a pickup truck. They designed a Formula One race car. And even after they started flying and they saw, hey, you know what? We said that we're going to be able to turn this thing around for another flight in two or three weeks. And the best case is like three months. They didn't adjust. I mean, they, they adjusted slightly. They, they, they said, we can't fly every week. Let's be more realistic. We'll fly every other week. So there was still this tremendous schedule pressure on that program. And we'll hear a little more about this in the next bullet point. Well, but but the, that's again, you're, uh, I'm wondering more, just in both these stories, how much was leadership responsible for making the story hold? Let me, as, as you move from ideation into bringing other people involved, the cost becomes exponentially higher. As you move from bringing people involved to, say, for example, building prototypes or building design work or starting engineering, it's exponentially higher. And as you move down that timeline, the costs and the risks to people's careers become exponentially more impactful. So who's to yeah. – you can't get all the way to the end and say, oh, by the way, we have a Formula One racing car. It's not going to be done in two weeks unless – there were people there who were willing to say, uh, David's a real jerk. I'm just, I, he doesn't listen. <laughs> I'm going to go with it anyway. I'm just going to, we're just going to do what they say. Well, you, 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 which was it leadership versus the people they, the stories that leadership told us compared to the stories that people tell themselves. You're, you're asking exactly the right question. And, you okay. know, something I learned in talking to some very smart people about organizational behavior is that culture comes from the top. And so what you're putting your finger on is the fact that, yeah, the culture of the shuttle program came from the top. And if you'd had people in the top of NASA who looked at the turnaround time, <clears throat> excuse me, and looked at some of the problems that were surfacing as the shuttle began flying and said, <clears throat> you know, Maybe we need to rethink this. Maybe we need to stand down from this kind of high flight rate that we're pushing you to do. That would have, history could have been different. You know, the, mm -hmm. the problems with the O-rings, and we've all heard about those O-ring problems that caused the Challenger accident. 
that surfaced really early in the program. They started seeing, and I'll talk more about this in the next bullet point, but they started seeing this problem early on, and then it got to a kind of a different version of the problem about a year before the Challenger launch that was more serious. But there was no let up in the, in the schedule pressure. In fact, the pressure was increasing to get to closer and closer and closer to this goal of flying every other week. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you a very revealing story that I heard from one of the shuttle astronauts. One of the things that NASA told the world and itself was that the shuttle would become quote unquote operational. And you, you know what that phrase means in the aerospace world. Mm -hmm. yeah. It would become operational after just four test flights. Okay. So the astronaut who told me this story was a former Navy test pilot who was selected for the shuttle program in 1980. And he, and this is about a year before the first shuttle flight. And he comes in and he hears them talking about shuttles going to be operational after four flights. And he has just come out of the Navy as a test pilot where everybody knows that when you have a new Navy jet, you have to fly it a hundred times or more before it's ready to turn over to the fleet, right? Before it's operational. So this new astronaut goes in to see one of the veteran astronauts, who's also a former Navy test pilot. And he says, let me get this straight. We're going to fly this thing four times and it's going to be operational. And the other astronaut, the senior guy says, don't pay any attention to that. That's political stuff that's coming out of headquarters between you and me. This thing's going to be in flight test mode for a hundred flights. Now that reveals a disconnect between the people at the top and the people who are right down there in the trenches who are actually closest to the reality. And by the way, <laughs> that didn't happen in Apollo. No, no astronaut went into another astronaut's office and said, I know they say we're going to land on the moon by the end of the 60s, but just between you and me, it's going to be more like 1973. Nobody said that. I bet you, I bet you there were people no, who said that. No, nobody said that because nobody thought that. Nobody thought that it, it might not happen in the timelines that they thought. I mean, when the Apollo that's fire you, happened, that's you're, you're, when the Apollo fire happened, there were a lot of people who right. were afraid the program might shut down. Right. Well, that means it could be delayed till the seventh. Right. But when that didn't happen, I guess you know that's a caveat there. My point is that the story about these two shuttle astronauts reveals this disconnect and perception of reality between the top of the program and the people who are actually closest to the reality. And there were people even. In the mid in the in the early '80s, after the shuttle began flying, who were saying, "This thing's an airline, and we got to fly it like an airline." I mean, this is not public consumption. This is behind closed doors at NASA. Fly like an airline, and you wonder. You hey, hear this I, stuff, this, and you this think, is, "How uh, could they? How could they think that?" Th this is not uncommon, uh, Andy. Yeah. I. As, as part of the work, when I speak, I have a very different modality than most speakers. I don't give the same presentation over and over and over and over again. You've probably done a lot of speaking, You similar presentations. I never do. I do upwards of 10 interviews. I actually don't. Interviews Every of, speech I give, I'm, I'm doing it on the different. fly. I'm, I'm doing it. Oh, on the fly. I'm okay. doing it from, so, I'm doing it from, my, from my, my slides. I, I put up the slides okay. to basically 
get my Rolodex dialed up to the right things, and then I just let it rip. What I meant is that you have a series, okay, you have a series of slides and things that you follow. Every pre presentation I give has been completely different. I do 10 hours of interviews from prospective members of the audience, and then I present using the data that I learned from these 10, but all the interviews are private. Nothing is ever shared. Mm. And I, uh, one client working with uh, Illinois Two Works, and we can mention this because David is a great guy, David Spear, he ended up passing away. But he had, after those 10 calls, we had a call about something we were working on. And he said, how did you learn all this? <laughs> because he had never heard these things. <clears throat> the people on his team, because they knew that there were 10, they, they, they didn't know how many calls, but each person was having a private call with me. I didn't record it. It was all just taken by uh, notes. But when you hear 10, you know, CFO, CEO, C, uh, CEO, uh, COO, uh, talent management, when you get them, you see a very different web. And he was surprised that the answers that I was able to pull out, and that's my point is that while you're saying that in the 1970s or 60s, I'm, I've got to believe there were people in there who were getting paid saying, there's no way this sucker is going to make it. But they would not have shared that publicly because they would have lost their jobs. Uh, you know, you might, look, I can't say that you're wrong. and I just haven't come across it. And I've, I've, I've yeah, well, and, and you probably will never come across it. And that there's always going to be that challenge there. Yet, I, w I agree with you with what you're saying is that there's a disconnect often between departments and individuals within organizations, expectations of what's supposed to be the outcome, in this case, getting to the moon, and the type of work that has to be accomplished. Now, when you go to SpaceX or you go to these other organizations, how is NASA dealing with, for example, if, because you know them well, how is NASA dealing with the fact that Elon says, got to try it again. Let's put another one on the pad. Let's see what happens. Well, you know, again, I'm, uh, it would be great for me to have uh, a more of an inside view of those conversations. But what my sense is that, you know, um, they're, they're frustrated with um, – the amount of time, I mean, they don't, they don't question it from a philosophy standpoint. They agree that you have to fly and get the bugs out. You've got to experience failure before you can succeed. I mean, they, that's part of NASA's DNA and even before NASA. But I think, you know, just to give you something that's been in the news and um, has been talked about quite a bit, is that last fall what came out was and keep in mind, when we talk about Starship, Elon is, is doing that for his own purposes. He believes that that's the vehicle that he is going to use to take humans to Mars. Um, yep. So he's doing this anyway, whether or not NASA wants to use it. However, Starship is in what they call the critical path to getting humans back to the moon with the Artemis program. And one of the things that came out last fall was that, and I think this came directly from Elon, that they estimated anywhere from 12 to 15 Starship flights to refuel 
the starship that yeah. they launch into Earth orbit, and you saw this. It's, yeah, that's a four, four, uh, fourteen, right? Fourteen refuelings to be able to get one starship to right. the moon. So you know that's a bit of a problem for NASA, and I, it's not clear how this is going to play out. Um, that's a lot of launches. And, and by the way, I'm a, I'm a CPM, a critical path method person. I absolutely love the technology. Uh, yeah, it, it's a big thing for the Artemis program. Yeah. And so, so are you, you know, one of the stories that we tell our, you know, that, that they've been telling themselves is we're going to get back to the moon by whatever it is, 2027, 2026, 2027, they've had to adjust that date and that's normal. But this idea that you're going to have to fly all these times and by the way the whole refueling uh concept when you're talking about propellants that are uh you know liquid oxygen is a cryogen uh very very cold hundreds of degrees below zero yeah. and so you have to it, it experiences boil off you don't have a perfect yeah. thermos right so you've got to make up for that loss before you can fill the tank i mean we don't have the refueling technology nailed no no matter how many flights and not to do 14 on yeah. it's a hundred ton but sometimes using a a uh, even though you could use a sledgehammer <laughs> sometimes using a hammer is a better tool what would that look like what, what do you mean well what i'm saying is the it's a hundred this is a large transport vehicle yes and potentially Having one large transport vehicle with 14 refuelings, which I think or Elon said, no, it'll be more like eight. And again, don't quote me on that because I'm talking out the side of my uh, whatever, is maybe there are other technologies that could fit that need where the Starship is really, I'm going to go back to your case, it's designed to go to Mars. Where you had said earlier this was the the, um, the shuttle was designed to be one way. It ended up being a, what do you call it, Formula One. And it wasn't the normal transport vehicle. Well, maybe we're trying to take a square peg and stick it into a round hole where it could be Bezos's Glenn might have a smaller, it does have a smaller capacity, but it could do some of the things that are necessary without those. Well, and, and as you probably know, Bezos and I think it's Northrop Grumman, but I may be wrong about this, are partnering to do the lander for the second Artemis mission. But I don't have much yep. visibility. I mean, really, I know very little about what all, that concept all, is. All I'm talking about is the storytelling. We're yeah. telling the story yeah. that Artemis, just the story, doesn't matter who's involved. I, I, I'm not trying to pick on any player. Yeah. We're telling a story that we'll get to the moon with the Artemis program. The Artemis program is going to use this heavy launch vehicle that can do 100 ton to whatever the, 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 the math that goes into this, and they can deliver yeah. this, but it's 14 refuelings. Yeah. Well, maybe someone should say, does that story sound right? And what I do every time I teach my class is I say, okay, gang, after we've been through all the case studies... I say, what are the stories that we're telling ourselves today about our work that we need to pay attention to? And it's always and that's exactly what I'm trying. Yeah. So when you hear the story, if you were the one to change it, what would the story be? Well, I mean, you talk about specifically with Starship or with Artemis as a whole, or I mean, I think um, 
it's well, just the, the whole, we just talked about Starship being the, the 14. The we just talked about the challenges that happened in multiple accidents with Challenger. Are is a story being told when it comes to the Artemis program or the Artemis the first state uh, first phase, whatever the the terminology is? Is there a story being told that should be changed? If you had to change the story, what would it be? Well, I don't think we know how much the story has to change yet because we don't. But I mean, I think it points to the. I think the basic story that NASA told itself long before now is we're going to contract out instead of having an in-house development program for a lunar lander. We're going to contract out to a private company that's going to deliver lunar landing as a quote service. And, mm -hmm. and I'm not saying, you know, this price quality deadline, pick any two, right? You've heard that. Yep. So I'm not saying that that by itself is an unworkable story. The nuance is, can you hold to a particular schedule that you thought you were going to hold to if you are doing that? I, 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 so you probably had a lot of you probably had a lot of interviews over the course of you. Well, I'm not interviewing. I'm asking serious questions, and the reason is looking at Project Moon Hut. We have a box of the roof and a door yeah. on the moon. We have four phases of development. We have plans and and designs that have schematics that have been done. We have scale models that have been yeah. done. For us to be able to achieve the box of the roof and the door on the moon. We have to be able to tell the right story. So I'm really asking that story. But our story is much more complex. Our story is not about getting to the moon. Our story is about improving life on Earth. And this is one piece of a puzzle. Yeah. And so I'm asking the question, if you could change that story, we're a story of coopetition. Not competition, but coopetition. Maybe, for example, in our case, we're going to have multiple scenarios, and I'm not going to give all the pieces out now. Is we're going to have multiple scenarios where the desired outcomes are going to be achieved, but in achieving them, they turn back on Earth. So when I say, "What story would you tell with Artemis?" I'm really trying to find out if you've said to yourself, "This is the story I would tell at this point, based upon the what we've seen happen." Whether it be Starship, whether it be well, let me um, put it Rocket Labs. Let me broaden it. Let me broaden it a little further. Uh, NASA has talked about going back, go, go, going back to the moon. They've also talked about going back to the moon as a stepping stone to go to Mars, to send humans to Mars. Yeah. And the story that they've told, I believe, the world as well as themselves, is that we can decide now a lot about how we're going to go to Mars and try to have some commonality between the hardware that we use to go to the moon and, go, and the hardware we use to go to Mars. And we can make a lot of key decisions now about what will be required to go to Mars. And I, my feeling is that the story they ought to be telling themselves is we need to be on the moon for a while, maybe 10 years. Okay before we know yeah, what yeah. we know, don't know now. And then we'll know much better what we have to do to go to Mars. We'll have technologies, hopefully we'll have some technologies that we don't have now. Um, we'll understand uh, the human, you know, um, what it takes to keep humans alive on the surface of another world. We'll understand that better. I don't, I don't, 
I have a hard time signing on to the story that says we're going to go to Mars in the 2030s because I just think it's going to take a lot longer before we really are ready. And it's going to depend on what we learn on the moon. Okay, thank you. That's what I wasn't looking for that answer. I was looking for an answer. That was an answer. So I agree with you more than you can imagine because and I'll give you a side story. One of the, our teammates was at an event with Bill Nelson, walked up to Bill and said, hey, here, here you going, uh, going to go. Uh, what's going on with NASA? And he said, we're going to the moon. And he said, why are we going to the moon? And he was he was just trying to find out being a part of our team. And Bill said, so we can go to Mars. And he said, why, why are we going to Mars? And Bill looked at him and then turned away, just walked right away from the conversation. There were several people in the group. Not that it was a question and answer session. This was a conference. They were just talking. So the next day, Bill was on stage. And this kid's son was one of three kids who were asked to ask the people on stage questions. It just so happened that his son was matched up with Bill. So Bill was asked the question. He, he did the same thing. He said, we're going to Mars. We're going to Moon to go to Mars. And the kid said, why are we going to Mars? And this is a no joke. So we could beat the Russians. Well, I've, I've heard it. I, so I agree. I agree with your commentary, but that doesn't tell me there's a story. Well, I, that we should be following. Well, I think I think I think we have to. We have to always have the awareness in the front of our minds that things are all often, maybe not always, often harder than we expect they will be. Mm -hmm. And so we make, you know, if we become schedule driven, we do that at our peril. If, if humans are involved, it's one thing if you, you blow up a rocket and you lose, I mean, you hate to see this happen, you know, a, a, a multi-hundred million dollar or, or even billion dollar spacecraft, that's, that's bad. You do not want that to happen. But if, you know, what I feel like my goal is I want to help people avoid the mistakes of the past, especially if it can mean that we avoid an accident that could kill people. So, so I'm going to, yeah, I agree. I, I'm going to change it. It's, I don't believe the, the the statement that you said. I don't believe we should be schedule driven. Well, you have to be to some I think degree. That's not what you meant. You have to be to some. Right. That's why. So I was going to say. I believe that you believe some. I think we have to be better at planning and better at implementing earlier on, so that we don't have the delays that but happen. Let me, and I think we could be better at. Let that. me. Let me. Let's go to the next bullet point because this will, sure. will advance the the middle. It'll. So we've got uh, beware of the reality distortion field. Where is the reality distortion field? What program was that? Well, my only, <clears throat> the only use of that phrase, I, I kind of coined it myself in this context, but the only other place I've heard it <laughs> was that it was used to describe Steve Jobs, <laughs> that, that he was a rea walking reality distortion field. And I use it to refer to the effects of external pressures like cost pressure, schedule pressure, and political pressure. Now, as you've just pointed out, you know, these pressures are a fact of life, right? You're never going to have a program 
that doesn't have schedule pressure. You're never going to have a program that doesn't have cost pressure. Even an Apollo, which was funded like a war because it was, in fact, a battle in the Cold War. It was funded like, you know, mm -hmm. it was a proxy for a shooting war. We didn't fire a shot, but we were basically fighting a battle in the Cold War. And, Absolutely. and so even in Apollo, they had cost pressures, um, but they mm -hmm. had more than enough resources to do what they were told to do. That was not true in the shuttle program, by the way. Um, but these pressures, the thing is, we have to be vigilant about the effects of these pressures because, and again, this comes right out of the history, when we're under these pressures, they can skew our perception of risk. We're more likely to indulge in what I call false perception of risk, which I'll talk about in a, in a second. But it's like you said, you can't do away with schedule pressure, but you've got to pay attention to what that's doing to your culture and to your mindset. Because if you don't, this reality distortion field, you can think you're being very mindful of safety and, and mission success, and you'll be thinking that right up to the time you go over the edge of the cliff. And I can give you examples of that. Why don't you give me, because I, I've got something to add to it. So, by the way, you were right. It was 1981 by Bud Triple, uh, Tribble, who said that about Stephen Jobs. Yeah, so I, so I thought right. that was fun to, to find that out, that, that Stephen, Steve Jobs was a walking reality distortion field. But So what are the examples well, that you so, have? So false perception of risk, which you're more likely to indulge in if you're under this reality distortion field of cost pressure, schedule pressure, and political pressure. What that is, is that you have a problem that you didn't expect. It starts to show up when you fly your vehicle, but you kind of, you get away with it, okay? So you keep flying. And the little voice in your head says, it hasn't bitten us, so we must be okay. And what I tell people that I teach is, you better pay attention to that little voice in your head because if that comes up, you need to ring the alarm and really look at what you're doing. It's the common thread in all three of the human spaceflight accidents at NASA that killed astronauts, the Apollo fire, Challenger, and Columbia. In each case, they had a problem, a vulnerability that was known, but they said to themselves, it hasn't bitten us yet, so we must be okay. I mentioned in the fire that there were people, decision makers at NASA who believed, hey, we've been using pure oxygen since the first astronauts we flew in Mercury. We've never had a problem with oxygen. We've never had a fire. We're not going to have one in Apollo. And they believed that right up until the day of the Apollo fire. I like to use, do you remember, David, you'll remember this. I think we're close enough in age that you, you may remember this. Remember the Arrow Book of Brain Teasers? All the little mm -hmm. books that we yeah. used to get from Scholastic Book Company, and they were great, right? Yeah. And there was one book that had some optical illusion. Uh, by, the, by the way, you're about, uh, I was born in 63. Okay. Yeah. So you've got a few years on me, but close. Yeah. So, so there was one book that had a bunch of optical illusions. And, and the, one of the illusions was a picture where if you look at it one way, you see a vase. And if you look at it another way, the same picture, nothing's different. 
you see two faces looking at each other in profile. And it's all about perception. It's the same mm -hmm. data, but you perceive it very differently. And perception is shaped by expectation. Perception is shaped by belief. Cognitive scientists have shown, have done experiments where this comes out very vividly. So the example I want to give you has to do with the telecon the night before the Challenger launch. And you may know this story that they'd already had, I don't. well, they'd already had problems with the O-rings on the solid rocket boosters. The, the boosters mm -hmm. were made not in one piece because you couldn't transport the booster in one piece from where it was made in Utah at Thiokol. The company was called Thiokol. Couldn't transport it in one piece by rail, so they broke it up into segments. And what they do is they'd assemble those segments at the launch site at Kennedy Space Center. And the segments were joined with this, um, this configuration called a field joint because it was assembled in the field. And within that joint was a pair of O-rings that were supposed to make sure the joint was sealed. There was some material made out of a very high temperature putty that was supposed to prevent any of the very hot gases of ignition from reaching the joint and, and getting to the O-rings and, and you know destroying their ability to seal the joint. But they started having problems with this joint on the second shuttle flight in 1981. Problem was not constant. It would happen, then it would go away, happen and then it would go away for a long time, come back. The year before Challenger launched, there was a new kind of twist to that problem where there was very severe damage to the O-rings where the hot gas was actually getting right by the primary O-ring and, and starting to attack the secondary O-ring, which meant that this redundant joint, they thought they had a measure of safety because there were two O-rings, but that went out the window when they saw that the gas could go right by the primary under some conditions and start attacking the secondary. And as the, the engineers at Thiokol started to look at this and they did some very basic, you know, tabletop tests, not really tabletop, but you know what I mean, not a not full yep. scale booster hardware. Yeah, they just started saying something's wrong here. Let's try to see what's yeah. going on. And they figured they saw some issues. Yeah, and they started to get the, the, the sense that it was related to temperature, which makes perfect sense if you think about these o-rings they're made out of rubber and and yeah. you know as richard Feynman, the great physicist showed in the session of the accident commission you know you put it in ice water and it loses resiliency well the night before the challenger launch there was a telecon between the engineers at thiokol in utah who were very worried about the next day's launch because it was going to be much colder than anything they'd had before. And they said, we're really scared about this. We don't think we're comfortable launching if it's below a certain temperature. And we think the launch should be delayed tomorrow until it's warmer. And the managers at the Marshall Space Flight from the Marshall Space Flight Center, who were on the call in Florida, said, you don't have enough data to convince us. They said, you've 
you've got to prove that it's not safe, which was a complete inversion. I mean, they didn't say it in so many words, but that was what everybody took from it. They're making us prove that we are not safe to fly instead of making us prove that we are safe, which was the, the safety logic all the way through Apollo was prove to me that I don't have a problem, not prove that I have a problem. So this is the reality distortion field in action. It's taking the same data and one side is saying, we're really scared about this and we're starting to, we're, we're, we, we've come to the belief that this is a temperature related phenomenon and the other side saying, what are you telling us? You're telling us we have to delay the launch until it's warmer? You know, what, what the Marshall uh, project manager said was, good God, Thiokol, you telling me I have to wait until April? You know, this was end of January. So yeah. this shocking inversion of the launch safety logic from prove it's safe to prove that it's not safe is a hallmark of what can happen to you when you're under these kinds of pressures. So it's... But it's um, the but. I'm I'm starting off with the but. Okay. I'm sorry. It's a it's a distortion of the distortion. Let me explain. The people who were from Thiacom who were on the call, Thiacol. I Thiacol, I could tell you, based upon the way you've said it, the people didn't have a great story. So, the individuals on the other side said, you know, I hear you. But everything we've done on our side and everything we've looked at sounds good. If, going to toss this out, if they had the CEO on the call and the CEO brought up a slide, showed an error, a test that was done very quickly to show that there was something, they might have balked for a moment. So here is an example of leadership or teams not sharing the story properly. Yeah. But let's go all well, the way. Let's go nuanced. all the way back it's to more a nuance. Right, it's, a, it's more nuanced, but let's go back all the way to the beginning because the first note I wrote down was, excuse me, language here. Why the fuck didn't they build it near, build these rings closer to the facility because they were so important so that they wouldn't have to be cut up into slices? <laughs> that was another decision that yeah, was good made. good question. So it, while we, you used, I, are you, I'm going to ask you this and this is not an insult, it's just a question. Do you know what a CPM chart is, a C, uh, critical path method chart is? I don't. You mentioned it before that you're a big believer in that. Okay. There, there is a, okay. In the 1950s, it's, it's been paid to think that I sent you. In the 1950s, so you could look it up. I'm not trying to belittle you. We could look it up. It's a page. <laughs> it's okay. No, no, uh, no three, worries. I think. Uh, it's, uh, in the 1950s, approximately, I think it was three or four organizations, including like General Electric, Lockheed, major companies, were having challenges with large-scale projects where they weren't coming out on time and on budget. So they created this technology. It's a, it's a project management tool. It can be converted to a leadership tool. That's the way it's presented in the book. But it's a tool to allow someone to be able to manage complex interconnected sets of activities to find out which is your critical path that determines the end state of an activity? So let's say you and I were going to, going to go, we were going to build something, and we saw that it's going to be, we're supposed to have it December 31st. But when we look at the path, we add the times to it, we're going to end up January 12th. 
Someone might say, well, this is the critical path, which it is the longest path in the sequence. And what you can say to yourself is, what can I do to impact that path? So maybe you go to a vendor and you say, can I pay you more? And you'll get it done in six days. And then you go to another vendor and get it done in five days. However, critical paths are kind of complicated because you could be paying one vendor to get it done, but it actually won't impact the rest because there's another activity that has to be accomplished that intersects. So a critical path tool is a visual, you could look it up, that allows an individual to do complex tools. I use them all the time. I mean, you wanna do a project with me, within a day or two, I'm gonna create a critical path method, a critical path, so it's very powerful. Mm -hmm. The reason that I'm bringing it up is because my first, my first question was, if this was such an important part, I don't like the word critical, if this was such an important part, because it's overused, in the methodology of putting the shuttle together, then it should have been done closer to the facility so it wouldn't be cut up into pieces because that was already an unknown. And some person could have made the decision for economic reasons, their cousin worked at the place, the bid came in late, it wasn't quoted right, they took the, long, they took the lowest bid instead of the highest bid. There could have been a variety of variables that we'll never ever know. And bringing it back to what you're talking about in terms of this reality distortion field, you have to also be careful. You, you, I'm sure you're familiar with the DNA sequencing with Watson oh, and Crick. Sure. Not on are the you, level that you the are, because I was not a biologist. Well, it's a simple thing. It was, they, were, they, they came out and said they'd be able to get it done in 15 years. And by the year, halfway through, literally halfway, they'd only sequenced about 300,000 DNA sequences. And everybody said, there's no way they can get this done the reality distortion field would have kicked in. However, they didn't realize the exponential learning curves that happened from the beginning of the development ended up being exponentially faster at the end. They actually got it done about a year and a half earlier. So you, there are times where, and I'm gonna give you very quick, the, that's number one, the DNA sequencing. You have to be careful because people can say it won't be done because they didn't do the planning. They didn't understand it. Number two, how many times have you gotten something done because you had a deadline? Oh, sure. No, no. Deadlines are, are very so, important. In fact, we wouldn't have gotten to the moon when we did if, if we, didn't we didn't have, have Kennedy's did, deadline. What, right, if we didn't have a deadline. So that also comes down to I'm, culture. We are some culture. We're, so it was the last one let me give you is that the hard part, what's tough and what you're saying, which like smacks me glaring bang in the face, is that timelines intersect. And it's very difficult to understand that often. So let's say I said to you, we're going to work on a movie. Tom Hanks, you have to get it done by the fifth, by the, uh, when could you get it done? I ask you in June. And you say, I'll have it done by end of year. And you say, great. And you're working on it. And you're working. How's it going? Ah, it's going okay. Not as good as I like. It's going okay. Going not as good as I like. But because you gave me the end of the year, I've told the film crew, I've hired a production crew, I've spoken to the actors, I've gotten all the, the locations right. set. And as we're getting closer, you say, yeah, but, 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 come on. You gotta understand it's a creative process. I would walk you in the back corner, Andy, and say, you've got to get this done. We have $15 million writing on this, and you can't just say, hey, by the way. Sure. So, the so my question to you with this reality distortion field, how do you know when it comes to these type of technologies if it is one? Well, look. Given what I've said, I'm sorry. No, look, um, no, it's a very good question. And, and I want to fold in what you asked, 
you made a comment that if the CEO of the company had been on the call and made a great case, things could have been different. And in fact, you're right in saying that the case that the engineers made didn't cross the threshold of convincibility or convincing power to, to shift yeah. the mindset of the people at, at NASA. In fact, there was even one guy who was even higher up in the food chain who was on the telecon who said, I don't propose that we go against the contractor's recommendation. What you need to know, though, is that the really damning stuff happened at the contractor because they initially ah. voted, the, the engineers said, we're not comfortable launching if it's that cold. And the vice president of engineering sided with his engineers and said, we're going to recommend against launch if it's colder than 53 degrees. It was going to be 26 degrees. And they said, we're not. Oh, yeah. wow. So at that point is when the NASA program manager said, my God, Thiokol, when do you want me to launch? Next April? And what happened was that the Thiokol guys said, let us go offline for a little bit and talk about it. And as soon as they went offline, the corporate VP got up and mm -hmm. said, am I the only one here who wants to launch? How's that for a charged question? And 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 he pay and that person pays a lot of these salaries. He does, but he's not in a mindset that can leave him open to what the engineers are trying to tell him. And the engineers Oh, oh no, but he could he also could be afraid of not being able to meet payroll. He's afraid he could be he's afraid. afraid of pissing off, pardon my language, Thiokol's biggest customer. And they had gotten a letter, right. they had gotten a letter a couple of weeks earlier that said that NASA was going to look for a second source for these boosters to there meet you go. their flight rate. So all this stuff is There you go. In. So, right. And, and that's up, going back to what I said a lot earlier. You don't know what happened to the child. You don't know how well, they had a, what happened not the even night that, before. The letter it's not that, even that obscure. We know it. Yeah, the letter. We know it. And we, and we know it because the people in the room have talked about it. And so... The guy who voted with his engineers under great duress changed his vote, and they came back on the line and they uh -huh. said, we support the launch with no temperature constraints. Now, did they know somebody yeah. was going to die? No, they didn't. They What they felt was... They would never... If they knew someone would die, they would have all been screaming right. and jumping up and down saying someone's going to die, someone's going to die. And what they knew was the engineers who were closest to the problem were really uncomfortable. They said, we're going in the wrong direction. We're getting colder than we were a year ago when we had this terrible erosion of the O-ring. Now, you, oh, wait, 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 you asked one, one other the, question. And I want, I want to answer sure, that too. Sure, I love it. So you said, why didn't they just build it closer to the launch site and ship it in one segment? Well, there's plenty of information about how they made that choice. And I can't remember now why... What the, you know, the, the, you know, they do scores. They, they rate them on management. They rate them on technical prowess. They rate them on, you know, all these parameters. Yeah. And then they, they make a decision. Well, there was one company that wanted to do a one-piece design, but they lost out to Thiokol. Part of the psychology was <laughs> it was yep. based on a segmented booster that had been used with tremendous success in an unpiloted rocket called the Titan, 
the Titan III, which launched, you know, the Viking landers to Mars and the Voyager missions to the outer solar system and a bunch of huge uh, DOD spy satellites. It had a stellar record of success. But what they didn't have, they never got those boosters back like we did with the shuttle. Oh, so they couldn't even see if there was damage. Exactly. They never knew if there was a close call. It was only after Challenger that some testing material, some testing information was made available to NASA that said, you know what? They did have close calls. (laughs) And so thank you for the dimensionalization because this is a, you're talking about the distortion field. And one of the things that I, I often teach when I'm working with people, it's not my main job, but... Uh, I've worked with executives around the world in all sorts of conditions, and I say, look, you create your pitch, but your story, and it has to be good. But then you sit back and you say, each individual who's in that room, if it can be done, what might they say or ask? You hold it back, because if you tell the whole story, you don't always get those questions asked because they it's kind of brushed over. And you hold back a few of them knowing that, for example, Andy's going to say, what about the reality distortion field? And you say, that's a great question. And you pull it up completely prepared. Now, if they don't ask it, you can pull them up anyway. You could say, look, we prepared a little bit more for you to help you. The reason is people learn things in chunks and sometimes they have to absorb it. So they could have shared about the challenges that they're facing and then heard a question and said, that's a great question. We did a test very quickly in the lab. We took the rubber. We put it at this temperature and this temperature, and this is what we had. Great question from Steve. Love it. This is the answer. And so a lot of this is it's storytelling. It's example. It's being prepared. And I don't know, and I'm trying. The only way I think you can start to stop this reality distortion field is by being much better at planning early on. you know, you're you're making an excellent point. And, and, you know, I don't even come in with the expertise on how you plan. I don't pretend to be any kind of, you know, sage uh, uh, giver of advice on that. What I can tell you is that at a very basic level, the way to make ourselves less vulnerable to what I call failure ingredients like false perception of risk or the reality distortion field is to make them part of the conversation. Like you, like you would any other technical issue, you know, if you're building rocket engines, you ask each other, are we vulnerable to metal fatigue here? Well, I'm my takeaway, my, I'm not trying to, you know, advocate for some world in which you don't have schedule pressure or in which you don't have these patterns of human behavior. What I'm saying is we got to talk about them to make ourselves less vulnerable to them. So, so, so here, here's the change. What you just said is part of the planning. The planning is we have a question session. We have a this session. These are the questions we have to answer. Here's an interesting thing, Andy. You've been to college. You've been to university. You've gone all the way up. It sounded like you did, you, you did grad I school? I did not because I had my little... Uh, okay, so you got, you got yeah. through college. Let's just use yeah. that as a number. How many courses, considering planning is one of the most important tools you could have for your entire life, planning your wedding, planning a vacation, planning with your family, planning your finances. How many courses did you take in planning? Zero. I have this conversation with my wife all the time because I try to share with her there's a difference, not because she's doing it, because there's a difference between an idea and a plan. 
and most people have ideas. Let's do it this way. What you're talking about, Andy, which is fabulous, is baking into the design and infrastructure is a timeline variable in the CPM chart that accounts for asking the questions about this. And if you don't build it in, you get crunched and you don't ask the questions. Does that make sense? And, and, you know, it's a great, it's a great thing that I, you know, maybe can go into organizations and advocate for now to say, when you start a project, build in regular, you know, there, the guy that I mentioned who put me on this path, Ed Rogers, who's since retired from NASA, yeah. the, the chief knowledge officer at, at NASA Goddard, he used to do sessions that he called pause and learn, where he would go into project teams oh, yeah. and they would take some time out from the intensity of the work and sit down and talk about what was going on on the team and were there concerns that people had that weren't getting voiced and were there other things they needed to talk about you i mean you need to advocate that that happened on a fairly you know frequent regular basis and as long as when the conversation starts in the beginning when they're sitting down creating the plans someone says i want to bake in a few of these points where we have a day Ah, uh, we don't have a day. No, 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 no. We're gonna we're gonna make a day here. We're gonna make a day there. We're gonna bake it into our planning. And so that becomes one of the checks that you have to accomplish to get there. If you don't bake it in and you ask for people to do it on the fly, that's when you end up with your reality distortion field because the but the hey, it's gotta be done by Tuesday. Hey, we've got a hundred we got a million dollars resting on this. Hey, we just got into something where they're looking for another vendor. Hey, we've got all of, and I give you 400 of them probably without stopping. That's but what the planning I'm saying, side. And, and, I, that's, and I would. I, I agree with you. I agree no, 100%. I, I just say bake it I, in the call yeah, plan. And, you know, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we're in violent agreement, as they say. Um, uh, what I want to do, and maybe you have some advice for me on this, I want to get into engineering schools. I want kids who are studying engineering to be exposed to this stuff while they're still learning. And, you know, that's a whole other arena that down the road I hope to be able to enter. So we have what's called a billion hearts and minds, and we have another program with inside of that. The billion hearts and minds is to get a billion people around the world to change based upon what we've worked on. And it's not change space related. It's change just in paradigm shifting and understanding. There's another one called a little bit of space. What does a little bit of space mean? It's a double entendre, meaning it's got two meanings. We want to go to teachers around the world. It's part of this program we're working on, and Pierce is, Pierce is one of the people working on it. Andy Aldrin and I have we eight months of conversation on this, is that we want to go to schools and say, let's teach. Let's take your uh, schools are taught in blocks. You have a block of this, a block of this, a block of this, a block of this, all over the world. What are you going to teach in each segment if you want to think about it from a different vantage point, yeah. a different language? We want to say, can you give us a little bit of space? And what that means is, can you give us three days about this? You have a whole year, and they say, oh, I, I don't have time to teach it. Well, let me ask you something. How influential has music been to pop culture that's dealing with space? 
oh my God, I mean, you got the Star Trek theme, you got dun 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 the the Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I mean, music and space have tied together. The themes from many movies have been appropriate. How about psychology? Looking from the world from afar. So I can create, there's a lot that goes into it. And I, if you want it, it's about a 25-page paper. We can get that to you. It's that we ask the school, we have to demonstrate to the school what the value is. And if it's a combination of planning and asking the right questions, but you have to go in with all the tools uh, put together. So if you would like to potentially hear more about that, absolutely. It's not just engineering schools. It should be what it planetary, what was your discipline? You called it planetary, planetary geology. geology. And it should yeah, also be science. it should also be in engineering and it should also be in life support. And it also should be in uh, you know, you could take all the categories that it takes to launch or to go beyond Earth, and you could find where you would need to have a whole new set of Well, you know, that's another point that I I forgot to make at the beginning, which is that the stuff that I been able to derive from the history of NASA, particularly Apollo, is applicable to any area of human endeavor. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so why don't we move on to number four? Yep, the understanding the risks. So all of the accidents that I mentioned, the fire that killed the first Apollo crew, Challenger and the Columbia shuttle that disintegrated on reentry, they all happened because NASA accepted risks that were not sufficiently understood, but they could have been understood if they had done sufficient testing. So with the fire, if you can believe this, they had a blind spot about oxygen at 16 pounds per square inch. They were focused on the in-flight atmosphere of five pounds per square inch. But flammability goes up directly with the concentration of oxygen. And there were plenty. Okay. It's an it's a, it's a exponential I don't, curve, I don't know that I it's exponential, say, but, it, but it, is, it is directly proportional. The flammability risk. Okay. The, 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 the intensity of the flame, the, all of those things go up with the concentration of oxygen. Do you know why it was 16? Yes. It's because why? they... They originally thought they were going to fill the cabin with air during Mercury. And the astronaut would be given pure oxygen in the suit. And so you wouldn't have a fire risk yeah. while the spacecraft was on the ground with 16 PSI oxygen. But they had a problem with their environmental control system where air was leaking into the suit. And the little gizmo called the demand regulator was being fooled by that. And the result was that nitrogen built up in the suit, which is, you know, that'll kill you if it gets high enough. Yeah. And they almost lost a test subject. Thankfully, they got him out in time. But they decided, we don't know how to fix this. We're going to just have to fill the cabin with pure oxygen during countdown. And the reason it was 16 was because they wanted a slightly positive pressure above ambient, which is, of course, 14.7. Do you know when they realized that the air was leaking into the yeah, suit. Yeah, it was 1960-ish. No, no, I mean in, t in terms of timeline, meaning if they realized it th four weeks ahead oh, no. or if they realized it four months no, no, ahead. No, they, they realized it before they'd even 
tried to put anybody in a mercury capsule and send him up. I mean, Alan Shepard flew in May of 61, and this was like sometime in 1960. I can't give you the month. But it was... So they were not able, they, they realized this condition and they were not, they decided not to, to solve it this way. This was, was the answer. That was the answer. And as I mentioned to you, they had this belief that, hey, we didn't have a fire with this in Mercury. We did the same thing in Gemini. We didn't have a fire. Right. But see, the thing is that they never tested for pure oxygen at this elevated pressure. What they... One of the guys that was running NASA said in an oral history many years later, he said, the thing we should have done was have a boilerplate capsule, fill it full of all the stuff that we'd have during a, a flight, all the materials that could burn in pure oxygen, which they had been testing, but they didn't test them at 16 PSI, put them all in there, light a igniter, see what happens and see <laughs> if it was something we could control. And they never did it. They never tested at this elevated pressure. And they never even tested what would happen if you put all those materials in a spacecraft and lit it off, even at a reduced pressure. And people had this blind spot about the ferocity of things burning in 16 PS. Now, this was, I have to tell you something. In my research for my class, I discovered a film that had been made way back in 1947 by the Defense Department called The Chemistry of Fire. And in the film, which is on YouTube, you can look it up and watch it. There's a demonstration, a guy takes some steel wool and sticks it into a open mouthed flask, which is full of pure oxygen. And then, oh, oh no, yeah. he, he, he um, ignites it. He gets it glowing with a, with a, a lighter or Bunsen burner, Bunsen burner. Yeah. And he sticks it into the pure oxygen and it goes up like a match head. I mean, yeah, it's just going to go you crazy. You can't appreciate that if you've never seen it. But they knew it. This is 20 years before this accident. And people outside NASA were aware of this. But within NASA, there was this amazing blind spot about the, the hazard at that pressure. I, I would I would, see I'm 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 wrestling with these terms because I'm trying to figure yeah. out for us. I mean that's the reason why I, these calls are so I learned something here. I'm trying to figure out for us, there are so many things that you could be testing and testing and testing yeah. and testing, and we're talking about things that have never been done before. So for example, a box of the roof and a door on the moon, the four phase development of the moon. What we've got has never been done before. Yeah. There is some historical reference for certain types of activities, but there's also not for many others. And you've even mentioned it. It's just one thing could go wrong out of thousands. That's right. And one of the one of the so there, there's there's you know I've I've puzzled about this and I've talked about it with the people in my classes. How do you spot the golden bullet that's going to bring you down? But in Vietnam, they the 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 guys who flew helicopters in Vietnam used to call it the golden BB. How do you spot the bullet that's going to bring you down? And if you're a program manager or project manager, you've got people storming into your office every day in a in a froth yeah. about, oh, my God, we've got this problem. We've got that problem. How do you even triage it? And I don't claim to have the answer except to say a start of how to how to do it is to look at history. You know, it, it, 
It's it's a start. We just had uh, there's another podcast series on the same website for uh, for redefining tomorrow. We just had Kevin Sarace on. He's brought three companies from zero to a uh, billion dollars in valuation. And in the call, we talked about entrepreneurship, and he said, well, the CEO's job is just always taking care of things that go wrong. And I said to him, you know what, you've not heard my my title. It's the CSO. And what is CSO, Chief Strategy Officer? There's a bunch of terms that you come up with. No, it's Chief Strategy Officer. I figured you were going there. Because my, my job is, my role is to take on all the things that go wrong and try to figure out a way to solve them or address them and to clear the path for the people yeah. in front of me. That, you know, I want to make sure that they could be successful. My point is that that golden bullet, it depends on, you know, there are probably many decisions made in this world and someone went into work and they had a bad day at home, they had something go wrong, and they just said, let's go left. And they say, why go left? You know, I've been thinking about it. Let's go left. And the reason they went left is because they didn't get to sit at home and go over the reports and they didn't want to look bad, and they knew that something mm-hmm. was on the line, their job, their role, the finances, the their health, they well, could have found out their mom just got cancer there was, that day. maybe there was an incident, and this relates directly to Challenger, maybe there was an incident two weeks before where the boss yelled at them and said, why the hell didn't you go left? And so they're, they're damn right. sure not going to be making that mistake again. Which is Elon saying, we've, you know, let's yep. go with this. And... It's not, I love that we're having this discussion because it's, it's an, the only, the, one of the case scenarios that I keep on going back to, and I'm playing this over in my head, just so you know, it's not, this is not just sitting on top of a, a, a no way, like we're just having a conversation, I'm interviewing, I'm just saying to myself, okay, how do we get people to understand that the real importance is making sure in the beginning that you have the time that you don't have, you're not pressured the same way. So you could look at the options. Maybe there are four different vendors and six different materials you could try. Maybe if you scheduled it properly, it's no, it's, there's no guarantee, but it's much better to have found out three months earlier that there's a challenge than it is to find out two yeah. months earlier or and a month I, earlier. And I, I share, and, I, I agree with you. I love the fact that we're doing this. We're kind of, and you're doing, we're doing together exactly what I try to do in the class because I don't come in with all the answers. I come in with a body of, of, of knowledge and a perspective that I've gotten out of my deep dives into history. But I, there's a moment in every day that I, that I teach this class, every full day session where I say to a room full of aerospace engineers, you guys help me figure this out because I don't have the answer. And I, I want to say to you, David, what do you do to get through? Let's say you could go into a room with people who are starting a project and they say, yeah, we did the, you know, they did this 20 years ago. It can't be that hard. What, how do you break through the mindset and get them to realize that they don't know what they don't know? So I'm going to give you a kind of counterintuitive approach to start, and then I'll answer that question. Every meeting we have in Project Moon Hut, we start with, how are you? <laughs> okay, now that might not seem like a very big question, but it's not about business. It's not about how's work. It's how are you? And the reason is during that call, at least for me, I'm hoping with others, that they're getting to know what's going on with this person. And I'll give you a scenario, and then I'll come back to uh, where this kind of, kind of comes from. 
we had a person on one of our teams. Uh, I won't mention the team because it, it, they've done a phenomenal job working with us for over two years. They have a ton of people working with us. And we got on, and this one guy just didn't look right. And we have this, how are you? And I said, no, 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 no. How are you? And he just put his head down, and he said, oh, this is not good, and this is not good, mm. and this is not good. And, and you could tell he mm. was hurt. We spent 45 minutes of that call working on the how are you, and then we cut the call because it's normally an hour and a half. There's a, this one CEO of, uh, of a major company had just flown into Italy. I don't know if I've shared this before. She had just flown into Italy to renegotiate a major deal. They needed to drop the cost because the economy had changed. And she, when she walked into this meeting, the CEO and she were, they were talking. She, said, she asked the person, how are you? He said hi, and she gave the pitch. And she came back, and it was a terrible meeting. And I was working with this organization for quite some time. And I said, did you ask him how he mm. was? She said, yeah, I did. And then we got to business. I said, no, mm. no, 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 no. I want to know, did you ask him how he was? And she said, well, I, I mean, how much can you ask? I said, if he had said to you that every other vet client of theirs has come in and asked for a discount and that they're, they're really, I mean, they don't know how they can manage this, would you have given your pitch differently? She said, oh, oh, yeah, I mean, I definitely would have if I knew that was the condition. I said, you didn't really care about how he was. You were asking to be polite. So I said, we're going to try something, two of us. What I want you to do is this weekend, this week, I want you to just manage by asking questions. You can't give any advice, nothing, just ask questions. She said, I don't know if I could do that. And I said, no, no, you can. Just people will get to their answers. You know, do you want to do red, blue, or green? Do you want to go left or right? Do you want just ask questions. So the next time we sit down, we sit down and I say, how are you? And for 13 minutes, she told me all about business. And I look at her and I said, so how are you? She says, oh my God. And I, she said, you know, I did try to do that at work, but I couldn't. But I did go home that weekend and I did it with my children. Do you wanna have spaghetti? Uh, Chinese food or whatever food. She, gave, she said, I always gave them options. And it was the best weekend I can remember since they've been alive because they felt like they had choice. They, I, they were being heard. I said, the challenge with you is you're so busy getting work done, you're not listening. Yeah. You know what that you? makes me think of though, David? So, go ahead. One of the most important questions you can ask about an organizational culture is what are people rewarded for? And mm -hmm. the woman that you were just talking about, in her mind, is she working under a belief that says, I'm only going to be rewarded for my productivity? Well, you're asking a great question, but so I'm going to complicate it for you. 800, she, her department was 800 people. She had a really dynamic, great uh, executive team. Yet it's in Asia. Yeah. Okay, so now, I mean, I spent 10 years there, so I have an understanding of what was going on, but the average uh, white-faced person, they call him guaylo, if it's the negative term, uh, the average person who was an expat that came in might not have understood the nuances of culture. And so you're at, you asked this question, how do you get people to ask these questions? Well, what I asked was, it's counterintuitive. What I asked was how do you break through a mindset 
that says, I don't have time to pay attention to behavior. And so the first part is you have to go slower to go faster. That's the asking the question because now the people know that you care, that you're working with them. But it's the, there's a saying in front of my desk that says the smartest person in the room is the person who asks the best questions of themselves and of others. Yeah. And so in order to get these individuals, if you needed it, you could do uh, an example of a role play where something comes in and says, hey, well, there's a fire going on. Or I mean, you can't yell fire in the, without being, but you could create a, a dramatic experience that happens. You could uh, have them watch a, a video that explains, I just watched a great video the other day on LinkedIn. I, a lot of people have seen it. This professor writes on the board one time, uh, uh, Two times two is four, uh, three times three is nine, goes all the way up to uh, nine times nine is eight, uh, eight times eight, and then goes nine times nine and screws it up, the last one. And the whole class, the whole place laughs. And he says, it's funny, I did all nine of the other ones right. And the only one you paid attention to is <laughs> the one I did wrong. And I did that intentionally because I, we have to remember to praise the people who've done the good things. So it's taking, th there are many ways to be able to, my point is there are many ways to get a person to get there, but I think the counterintuitive one is to just teach them. It is to give them the tools to equip them to be able to make those decisions on their own. And uh, we talked about planning. I called the top 10 business schools in the United States and asked them if do they teach any courses on planning, time management. One of the most important skills that you could learn to be in business. The top 10 business schools in the United States, undergraduate, not a one. I then called the top 10 graduate schools in the United States and asked them, do they have a course on planning? Wow. Not a one. Wow. And you had, did, but, but it should be across every discipline, well, so shouldn't we're it? Talking, we're talking the same language here. We both see a gap in. Right. Yeah. It's, 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 uh... So so you could actually go in and talk about planning before you talk about the, this, um, this field, this distortion field. You could talk about planning well, first and say to everybody in the room, I, show me, you know, draw out, explain to us how well, you, you know, plan. I do. And I can guarantee you they would. I, I do feel that once you get somebody's attention and you start talking about the behavior stuff, they really do. They really are fascinated by it. I think there's an opportunity there. Um, I just have to get out from under the, the current, uh, you know, I'm writing the companion book to the course, and that is consuming an awful lot of my, my bandwidth. But when I get beyond that, I'm going to try to do the things that, that, we're, that we're talking about. Well, we can talk, and there's also, you have a copy yeah. of Paid to Think, so you could read it, yeah. chapter three. Read, read the forward, the intro, and the first two chapters, and then read chapter three, and you will, it, 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 I don't make any money, yeah. I gave it to you. So it'll, it'll, it'll give you a whole different perspective. So and let's get on to this, beware of the us, us, them, and, and I'm here for you, so you could always reach out. We want you to become part of Project Moon team, so Thank we're you, helping David. each other. Thank you. So, uh, no, no worries. Number five, beware of us, us them versus thinking. Them thinking versus them. Yep, there's a VS in there. So yeah. yes. So so just to put a fine point on my last one, just to sum up there, 
I talked about the fire, but Challenger and Columbia could have been prevented by sufficient testing of the things that brought them down too. And you're right, the engineers didn't make a good enough case because they had not been given permission to do enough testing. Um, <laughs> yeah. So wow. us versus them thinking. This is something that is absolutely epidemic in our culture today. We are wired, you know, we're all tribal beings. We come from tribes. Families are tribes. Uh, ethnic groups are tribes. Uh, sports teams are tribes. Religions are tribes. And we are wired up to be tribal in our thinking. We, we evolved the capability to, to, to run a subroutine, which is always running in the background, whether we're conscious of it or not to evaluate someone who comes across our path and say, is this person one of us or not? And if you think about, you know, when we were living in caves, right? Uh, somebody comes to the mouth of your cave, you it, it's advantageous from a survival point of view to be able to tell very quickly if this person is there to bring you food or to steal your food. So we are hardwired to do this us versus them thinking. The problem is that in a technical organization, or really any organization, when you start to make members of your own organization the other, when you start to think of those people mm -hmm. as them, you're asking for trouble. And the way it surfaces in the context of NASA, one example is something that they call not invented here syndrome, which you may or may not have heard of. So yep. somebody comes up with an outside the box idea. I know you don't like that expression, but but well because it doesn't, well, it doesn't work. Okay, yeah, but, but go ahead. To, yeah, for the context just, of just this, yeah, yeah go ahead, indulge, continue. I understand. In this context, yep, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with you. I'll go okay, with the flow. I'm writing go notes. Okay, go ahead. Great. So <laughs> somebody comes up with an outside the box idea, as as happened more than once in Apollo, and and the the people who are being pitched this idea of say, why is he even talking to us? He's not one of us. He couldn't possibly know how to do it right. That's tribal. Another example, and by the way, one of the things I talk about is that we all have, because of the limitations in the way our brains are created, are constructed, we have what I call a limited spotlight of awareness, of, of conscious awareness. We can only perceive at any given moment a tiny subset of our reality on a conscious level. And so we need... Have you been speaking I, to my wife? I have not. <laughs> <laughs> um, is this, is this uh, touching a nerve, David? I don't know. Did I say that out loud? I, I thought my mic was off. <laughs> so I, 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 really, I really think that, that the history shows us that we have to have multiple spotlights and awareness on the problem to be able to get to the, to the finish line. Another aspect of this us versus them thinking is something that we hear about a lot in organizations, which is called stovepiping, where people stay in their own little, what they call swim lane, and they don't talk to people who may be in the next cubicle or the next uh, section of the of the office area or whatever. You, you don't have these water cooler conversations where people cross pollinate. And again, you're depriving yourself of the multiple spotlights of awareness that can bring you perspectives that you wouldn't otherwise have. 
Now, just to give you one example of how this played into one of the accidents that I teach in the Challenger disaster, I mentioned to you that telecon that happened the night before the launch. Well, yeah. Marshall Space Flight Center in Alabama was responsible for those boosters and therefore the O-rings. The, pro the management of the whole shuttle program was at the Space Center in Houston. There had always been tribal tension between Marshall and, and the Houston Space Center. And Marshall never communicated with Houston about the concerns about the O-rings and temperature. Houston didn't even know about that telecon. If they had, they might have said, well, wait a minute, what, what, what happened? What, what, what did the engineers say? Why did they say it? They never said one word about it. And so there was a missed opportunity there to delay that launch. And that was... And it could have been behind closed doors that one of the people said, do not say anything. Oh, it was anything. understood. It was We're going forward. It was. It was. Yeah. It didn't have to be said explicitly because it was such a part of the culture. I mean, I asked one of the shuttle commanders, who obviously was based in Houston. That's where all the astronauts are based. I said to him, "How would you describe the culture at Marshall?" And he said, "What happens at Marshall stays at Marshall." So I'm going to ask you a question about yeah. tribal. What do you think is the number one thing that space people say to that me? That space people what? People who are enjoy beyond Earth who are bad. What's the number one thing people say about me when they're talking to me? They'll say it right to my face. You're not tribal. They say, you're not a space person. You don't understand. Oh, oh sorry to hear that. I get that all oh, the I'm time. <laughs> Well, that's, that's unfortunate because it closes doors to what could otherwise be a shared experience. Correct. I am, because I'm not in love with space, I therefore can't understand the technology. By the way, my background is organic chemistry, physics, calculus. I did got straight A's in organic chemistry. I mean, I, I have a background in biology and a dual major in psychology, got an MBA, but I've worked in over 300 different industries, nanotechnology, aerospace, water and sewage construction, retail, but I don't understand space. Mm -hmm. now, how do you think... How do you think collaboration starts where someone doesn't have an under... And I'm using it as an example to... Because I want to take it further. How do you think it feels if you're not in the space ecosystem? If the people in the space ecosystem think that if you don't love space, you can't really it's do any of this. It's completely unproductive and, and um, unfortunate. It's, I, hate, I hate hearing that. Um, it's, it is so oh. ubiquitous. It is so challenging. Yeah. That it is one of, if it is one of the challenges within Project Moon Hot for me, is that it's almost like I have to grab my seat when I'm making a call to a space person because I'm not sure if they're going to be open to the fact that maybe we do have a box with a roof and a door. Maybe we do have some of the most complete plans, as we've been told by people. Mm -hmm. Maybe we have some things here, but you can't even get that far. Yeah, I mean, this is. Um very unfortunate, and the only thing I can say, I mean, it makes your job that much harder, 
Um, and you have to think of, think about history. How many innovations have come from outside right. the industry into an industry? For example, someone comes from another country. It's some number like fifty six percent of the Silicon Valley uh, startups were startups by people who were not American, not U.S. citizens. They came yeah. to America, and they looked at the world differently. Yeah. That's a huge number. Now, it could be 52, it could be 57, please don't kick me for it. But it's that a lot of ideas, uh, Waze, the, um, you remember Waze for GPS for your car? Yeah. They, everybody was trying to build in-sensor road technology to know where people go, and these people at Waze said, hey, everybody's got a mobile mm -hmm. phone. Why don't we just leverage everybody's phone and we'll use the data that comes <laughs> off of that? Because they looked at the world differently. And the, this Beyond the Earth ecosystem could have some benefits from people who don't see the world the oh same way. Oh, my God. Absolutely. Uh, so so, the, again, so the, the, this tribal thing, you hit me really hard when you said that because I'm thinking, ah, how do you – I haven't come up with an answer for that. I, I can. I tell you what I'm doing. Well, I, I was going to say – and then, and then I want to hear what you're going to say. But I, I was going to say – you, you just have to work that much harder to build a person-to-person -person connection outside of the, the space subject matter. And I would say we're doing a little bit differently. We're putting, the, the term here is Thor, Wonder Woman, <laughs> and Hulk. It's not David. It's that we know that Andy Chaikin has looked at the website. We know that you now know about us. You've heard some of the quotes from some of the people that we're working with. And it's one of the big surprises where sometimes we'll say, uh, we'll be on a call, say, for an interview. And they'll say, well, I've never heard about you. Well, that doesn't mean anything. But could you open up the page of the podcasts? And you see their eyes go scanning. And they say, I, I, I know like 30, 40% of the people on this list. And my reaction is always the same. How did they know about us and you don't? So we're building Thor, Woman, Wonder Woman, and Hulk because it's not about Project Moonhead. It's about Kirkland and Ellis, the seventh largest law firm in the world, KPMG, Deloitte, PWCEY, JP Morgan Private Banking, Maples Group, Carta. It's about we just brought on 17 law firms around the world to do office actions. We have the guy who invent, who created the uh, software. When you get a text message from Amazon that says that your package has arrived, the guy who built that for all of Amazon is on our team. The number one ontologist in the world is on our team, Barry White. And if you go down the list, what we're doing is we're building an army of individuals like yourself who learned about us and said, huh. So that's... It's kind of a, a softer so, approach because I I couldn't win. What, I can't win. So why it is it called? They, you have to love space. Why is it called Thor, Wonder Woman, and Hulk? Because you know when you when you're about to go into an alley and you're about to fight like eight guys and they're like pumping and they're they're ready to fight you, and then right behind you walks Thor, Wonder Woman, and Hulk, and they go, wait, well, wait, 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 okay, okay, well maybe we're not going to fight you right now. We're going to listen. <laughs> So it's, we're bringing the army, um, what's the one with Mel Brooks where they come over the hill? Blazing Saddles? You know, the, the fight. The 
No, no, Mel Brooks with the the fight, the the big scene where he's battling in Ireland or Scotland. Yeah. There's one scene in in History in, of the World uh, Part uh, Two. I'll, I'll look it up in a moment. No, it's a it's a battle. It's a warrior film. Mel he comes Brooks? over the ridge. And he's going to fight. Not Mel Brooks. Sorry, Gibson? Mel. Um, not Gibson. Is that his name? Mel. You know the the guy who was. Um, oh, yes, very Mel Gibson. Different from Mel, Mel Brooks. Gibson. I was Mel thinking. Brooks. Yes, very different. Yeah, Mel Brooks. I'm sorry, <laughs> that was my mistake. It's Mel. I, 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 Mel Gibson. Right. He's the guy. What's the one there? He, he's oh, Scottish Braveheart. guy. He's, Braveheart. He slaps. Braveheart. Remember when he comes over the hill and they're kind of laughing at him like he's only got these few people, and then the whole crew comes over and it's okay. This is the <laughs> army. What we're doing is we're quietly. We're meeting with people like you. And I can't even tell you this past week, the people we're talking to, they're just over the top because we're just trying to do the work in the background. So to answer the question about this tribal, it's not an easy thing to get over. You have to have successes behind you. You have to have accomplishments behind you. And it's a the Beyond Earth ecosystem because the topic is, what will it take to get us back to the moon? Well, one of them is, anybody who's listening to this podcast, is to open up to the fact that you don't have to love space to be interested in creating a box of the roof and yes. the door on the moon. Because you could be a lawyer who's helping us to navigate something. So for example, Maple's group out of the Cayman Islands, they've done phenomenal work for us, but they're not space people, they're just people. The Carta, which is the company in California that does the options trading pools, they gave us a deal that's absolutely beyond imagination. Uh, FT Fiduciary Services in Luxembourg became our fiduciary. They know nothing about this because you need all of these people to get a box of the roof and a door on the moon. Right. And so we're, we're, gener we're trying to generate them in our own way. But so it's a tough one. And if we're going to get a box of the roof and the door on the moon, we have to have us working together. It, it, us versus them is a terrible way to, to build yeah. that. Well, so we're, we're speaking the same language. So, which, uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So what's this next one? Awareness has a shelf life. I was interested when well, you said that. Yeah. What does so, that mean? You, you know, one of the things that we see is that when we have a catastrophic failure, it shifts our awareness. I call it a window of clarity that opens we can see things differently. We say, oh my God, how could we have done X, Y, Z? How could we have been that, that stupid? You know, sometimes we say that to ourselves. And, and yeah, I mean, Every it's day. just the way, the way we're wired up. The problem is that that yeah. window of clarity doesn't stay open forever. And what the history shows us, unfortunately, is that it is shockingly easy to lose those lessons that we acquired so painfully in the wake of the last accident. And just one example is that, you know, Challenger happened in 1986 and it really took very little time, only, you know, a, a relatively few years, like less than a decade, for those lessons to, be, to start being lost at NASA and paved the way for the Columbia accident, which happened 17 years to almost to the day after Challenger. Very, very similar human behavior lessons. The fact that, again, this false perception of risk, they had a problem with foam coming off of the shuttle's big external tank and hitting 
sometimes hitting, well, very often hitting the orbiter, the shuttle orbiter, where the astronauts were during launch. And they had some very close calls. They had one flight just two years after Challenger where foam hit the bottom of the orbiter and damaged the protective tiles, these silica tiles for reentry. One of them was damaged so badly that it got down to bare metal. And it was only because there was an extra piece of metal underneath that spot that they didn't kill that crew. Yeah. And yet, even with close calls like that, they started to think of the foam strike in the same way they thought of the O-rings. Well, it's not the way we designed it, but we can go, you know, it hasn't bitten us yet, so we're, we must be okay. And by the time Columbia happened in 2003, because of a foam, big piece of foam that broke off during launch and hit the leading edge of the wing on, on the Columbia shuttle, you know, it had been classified not as a safety threat, this recurring problem, but a quote unquote maintenance issue. And so the lesson is that awareness has a shelf life and we must, you know, not just every year, NASA has what they call Remembrance Week every year, because all the three accidents happened around the same time at the end of January, beginning of February. And so they have every year they look back and they talk about the lessons. My point is you've got to build this into your culture that you're, you've got to create a learning organization that remembers the lessons and lives by them. But it's very hard to do. And these, you know, the, the conversation has been more about the technological uh, lessons. No, no, it's really not about, it's about These, the human behavior lessons. No, no, what, and that's not what I meant is the accidents around technology conditions. It, the, the, you're not saying there was a budgeting error. You're not saying there was an error in hiring. You're not saying there was a contract challenge. Because in each one of these departments, you could probably relate back, like I did with the O-ring, well, how was this selected? Or the fact that they sent out a letter to the company, by the way, we're looking for somebody yeah. else. I mean, how would how would you react if your company, let's say I'm gonna use your relativity space, you had contracts, you yeah. haven't gotten a rocket off. You're looking yeah. at your cash flow, and you get a letter that says, Hey, you don't ship. We're not gonna do any more business. Well, with and you. you're absolutely right. And you know, if I could go back in time, I'd be standing in the office of the person who sent that letter to Thiokol saying, by the way, we're going to look for a second company to provide our boosters. And I'd say, and what is it you think is that's going to do to the to the mindset at Thiokol? Do you understand the implications and the repercussions of the letter you're about to send? And no, they don't. And, the, and even if you have this whole scenario planning. But see, it goes back. I'm sorry, David, let me, me just say this and then you can continue. Yeah. It goes sure. back to the stories we tell ourselves because everybody at NASA was in the grip of this narrative from that had existed for yeah. decades, you know, a couple of decades. We're going to make spaceflight routine and affordable. The overarching goal is the flight rate and everything else flows from that. Uh, yes, uh, the, the, there's a perception that I'm trying to get through because I, I, I'm going to bring you back to a number eight. <laughs> so there will be an eight. 
you, you gave seven, but there'll be an eight. Uh, had a company just recently, I had to do three speaking engagements. I had to show up on time. I had to do the work on time and great reviews. I'm going to throw that in there. Great reviews on each one. Even the person who ran the program said some of the best programs she's ever run in like seven years at their event, at this organization. So the, but they don't pay on time. So I wrote to them and I said, it's kind of funny. If I showed up 10 <laughs> minutes late, didn't show up for a half hour a day, you would say I don't get paid. But you don't pay me as mm -hmm. if that's okay. I didn't hear back. I saw online payment authorized. <laughs> but it still was late. It was still was late because I even gave him a warning. I said, your bill's due in a few days and I did my work on time. Are you going to get it time? And she didn't ignore it. But then I wrote this kind of direct letter saying, if I showed up late, you would not have paid me. So what's the difference here? So this remembrance, I'm going to dimensionalize it. I think the remembrance, if you are going to go in this way, has to be in every department, meaning purchase orders. How did you select your, your vendor? Did you select, you have this list, but did you put in there uh, this category of X? Maybe that's missing in the evaluation. And therefore you ended up with challenges because you brought that up. You said there's the, that thing that they have to, they get scored on. Maybe there's a missing variable in there, such as proximity to launch site. Mm -hmm. That could have been one of the variables that would have changed everything. So what about the proper paranoia? Pro so proper paranoia is, is, is a phrase that I heard from one of my great mentors who is uh, by now they would call him a gray beard at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, a fellow named Gentry Lee, who I first encountered when I was a college intern on the Viking Mars landing. And Gentry was just a, is a fabulous person, a great thinker, very broad thinker. And today he is somebody who can look over the shoulders of project teams at JPL and say, are you considering this? And they have to stop and think mm -hmm. and say, wow, no, we haven't, you know, or you're not facing up to the reality of what you're doing. You're not going to make the next launch window to Mars. You have problems that are going to delay you and you need to stand up and say that now. He's done things like that. Anyway, I interviewed Gentry for a book that I wrote called A Passion for Mars about people that I've known in my life who were passionate about the exploration of Mars, including my college professor, including scientists who sent cameras to Mars, orbit Mars, and completely overturned. One of the reasons I love the story of Mars exploration is that every time we've looked at Mars more closely, we've seen a completely different planet than the one we thought was there. And this started when I was in high school, when we discovered they started seeing, you know, these enormous volcanoes and giant canyons. Up until that moment, they thought Mars is like the moon, sort of, but it's got a very thin atmosphere. It's kind of boring. Well, you know, they looked at the whole planet with this orbiter and it was like, where did that planet come from? Right. So I wrote this book and I mm -hmm. interviewed Gentry about the Viking mission that, that I had been an intern on. And he told me about the man who ran the project at the um, 
contractor that built the lander, Martin Marietta, it was called at that time. A fellow named Jim Martin, who looked like General Savage. <laughs> the guy had this crew cut. He could be very intimidating. He was a lovely guy underneath it all. I, I got to meet him and talk to him when I was a student. But Gentry told me that Jim Martin's philosophy of how you run a program is that you hire, you, 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 you practice what he called proper paranoia, which is to say that you hire the best people you can get and you turn them loose, but you are scared, pardon my language, shitless that it won't work. Mm -hmm. I used that word earlier. Yeah, actually, so don't I think you it. dropped an F-bomb. Yeah. Oh, I did? So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Might, yeah. So might, I figured might I could come in under the radar with shitless. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll uh, I, it, it, I only use right. it when it's really appropriate. So hopefully right. I used right. it at the right time. So, okay. so you've got to be running scared a little bit that this, that it won't work. And you have to be saying to yourself constantly, what am I missing? You can never afford to say, we've got this nailed. And one of the reasons for that is because space systems are so complex that you will never, I've literally had this said by a NASA um, uh, engineer who investigated a, a, a near catastrophe on one of the space station spacewalks where, a, and you may have heard about this, an Italian astronaut had a water leak in his helmet during a spacewalk and he almost yep. drowned, right? I mean, he got back to yes. the airlock in time and the thing is that there were warning signs of this problem on a spacewalk by the same guy a week before, and they missed the warning sign because of the story they told themselves about what that water leak meant. And what this guy, this engineer who had investigated this mishap said was, you can never know everything about your hardware. There can always be something that comes up that you haven't seen before that can bite you. So proper paranoia is a mindset that you must have if you want to avoid failure. And that, I'll say one other thing, and it relates, it relates to sure. what I call failure behaviors. One of my failure behaviors is closed-mindedness. And that's another thing that we see a lot in our culture where people live in thought bubbles where they seek out information that confirms what they already believe. What proper paranoia tells us is that you must be open to information that conflicts with what you believe. And you must be willing to pay attention to that. And people say the hardware talks to you. You've got to hear what the hardware is saying, even if it challenges your beliefs. Easier said Absolutely. than done. Uh, I, 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 I have jokes about this. I've been with my wife for 37 years is I often ask people, have they changed their wives or their husbands or whatever, if they're spouses, mates? And people look at me and say, oh, no. And I said, so you can't even change a person you're oh, living with. Oh, you don't mean with. get divorced and remarry. You mean change how they think. Well, actually, the last call I was on, the last interview, I said, well, have you, because he brought something up, I said, did you change your wife? He <laughs> said, I'm on my third. I said, I said, well, then you definitely changed your wife. <laughs> so I always use the expression, I'm on my yeah. first. Uh, it, it's not an easy thing to see what you don't know you're not seeing. And you're asking someone to see what they don't know yeah. that they're not seeing. 
because we are human and that's a challenge. And maybe it's, uh, I use chat all the time. I, I will dump something into chat and say, this is what I've written, created, designed. What am I missing? Or can you give me 10 ways to do this? I, eight of them I'll know, but nine and 10 mm. I didn't think about. And I'm using chat as my, um, my right-hand person to question the things that I'm working on. So I might dump it in and say, Give me a counterintuitive pro. Uh, what you're saying, what you're saying, saying oh, wow. is that, uh, yeah, wow. what you're saying is that AI has become the spotlight of awareness that you could that you're bringing onto your team. One of the spotlights of awareness to give you that uh, diversity of perspective. Oh yeah, I, I because if I it's taking my content, what I've written or somebody else has written, I dump it in. And I'm saying, okay, what did we miss here? And it might, you know, can you give me a series of questions that we missed? And it's always going to come up with questions. It's always, but you have to be open to dump it in there and have it challenge you. So just the other day I did, we were working on a paper for something that we had to do with uh, our Myrtle, our platform. And I said, okay, if you were to do this and you had to do it globally, what would be the top 10 things you would do? And it gave it to me. And I said, what if I gave you a budget of a half a million? Gave me. What if I gave you a budget of a million? Okay, what are we missing here? What am I not asking you? Brrr, like 10 things that I wasn't asking. I said, okay, let's go down each one of them. And it's a conversation that I'm having with AI to find what I might be missing. But I'm always saying, go to projectmoonhut.org. Here's the, here's the copy of Paid to Think. Read the book. Understand what I know. I have to, now the large learning language model gets to know you. So it's now able to give you more information. So when I say, do you know Project Moonhut? It says, yes. Okay. Do you understand this? Let me give you the, let me give you the billion hearts and minds and it's 32 pages, or let me give you what we're working on in this area. Okay, got it. So yeah, I'm using it to question myself all mm -hmm. the time, all the time. So I wanna to get to number eight. This is gonna be one that'll be fun, uh, at least for me. Okay, see if it is let me, um, <laughs> okay. let me just. Okay, we're going to get to number eight, and this is, I, I will pause for one second, just got something in from one of our teammates in, uh, in Asia and Pakistan, and he wants to continue writing a document. We've got some great things happening, so it was nice to see that. Okay, so here's the question. The title of the program is, what will it take to get back to the moon? And I want you to push aside because a lot of what you talked about was the challenges of making sure we do things right, that we don't make the mistakes of yesterday and that we clear those, those paths away. My question is so that we deliver on the promise of the title a little bit more. Taking what you know about the ecosystem, and we're just making this up, we're just talking as friends. If you had to design it, getting us back to the moon, you, you could even, you were saying some great things about Project Moonhut, there's a great to throw those things in too. What do you think it would take to get us back to the moon besides being cautious, watching out for, being aware on and on. What do you think it needs for us to actually, to make well, this Well, I would actually take issue with just one tiny element of what you just said, which is that caution is important 
but so is boldness. And if okay. you'll remember earlier in the conversation, I talked about spaceflight. The analogy that I use for spaceflight is being on a high wire. And I, I talked about it in the sense of how unforgiving spaceflight is. And, and one little, you know, false move and you fall off the, hard, the high wire. Yeah. What I always say when I teach the class and I put up a picture of a high wire walker and I say, how do you stay on a high wire? And, and, and uh, the answer that I'm looking for is balance. So really, these things are dynamic conditions. Balance is not set it and forget it. And there's nothing about spaceflight that is set it and forget it. You have to constantly be asking yourself, are we doing what we should be doing? And so I would say there's a balance between caution and boldness. One of the reasons we got to the moon in Apollo when we did was because there were bold ideas like um, sending the very first Saturn V with astronauts on it into lunar orbit, which was not the original plan, the, only the second Apollo mission. But they had enough testing under their belt and they had the confidence, well-placed confidence to do it. So I would say with Project Moon Hut, you want to strive for that dynamic condition called balance and recognize when boldness is called for and recognize when caution is called for. Um, recognize when you've done enough testing to try to reach farther versus when you haven't. You know, one of the things that you hear sometimes these days, and testing costs money. You know, I said before that the accidents that I teach could have been avoided if there had been sufficient testing. But testing costs money. And so, you know, under the cost and schedule pressures that we talked about, you know, there's a reluctance you know, sometimes to spend the extra money on sufficient testing. And people have a mindset, there's a mindset these days that you hear sometimes that says, well, just run a computer model. Well, that that may get you, you know, 80% of the way there. It may get you 75% of the way there, but it's it probably won't get you all the way there. And so I guess what I'm saying is, you know, we talked about the how tough it is to spot the golden BB. I feel like there's a secret sauce that successful project managers have that's born of experience. You really want to have people in the decision-making positions of your project that have been through failure and have learned from failure and have had hands-on experience. The thing you don't want to have, and this is part of the problem that NASA has had like during the years before Challenger, the guy at the top had never done human spaceflight. He was a business guy. The, his second in command had never done human spaceflight. He, he came out of the robotic spaceflight world. You don't want to end up in that position where people making key decisions don't ha haven't experienced the realities. Does that help at all? Yeah, it's interesting because if you look at the average age of an, a SpaceX employee, it's 27 <laughs> years old. You look at the average age of a, and I won't list the names because, but they're a lot older. I mean, they're in their mm -hmm. 40s to 50s. You need both, don't you? I in mean, terms you need of age. the young 
enthusiastic people. What I what I tend to hear about SpaceX though is that they tend to hire these young people and burn them out, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, and well, it's but it's it's part of the game of speed to to, to market see, and what decision making. What happens when you burn out people is that you lose the expertise born of experience. But well, the the cha once something is embedded and it's in the cult, it's already been built. Then you don't do need you that person the, for the next phase. How do you phase, keep it in the example, culture that the people who live through it aren't there to talk about it to the newer people? Oh, because it's the the mechanism is there. They've the, what is the uh, the the rocket that they're using 9. currently? What's the name of it? I keep forgetting. The Falcon Nine. The Falcon Nine is what nineteen uh, times it's been used. They planned on it only being used a few times. Something was Falcon was coming to my mind. I couldn't figure out what was the number. So the the challenge is, or the the misconception, is that. We need those people there who are there early on, who are going through the phases, and you don't. Once the assembly line is put into production, once all the mechanisms are put in place, once the supply chain has been established, once the processes are done, to some degree, you want a new person to walk in and say, how do we do it better, faster, cheaper? And you hope that the culture allows you to be able to do that so that you end up with the next generation. Otherwise, you're going to be stuck in the past. So it's not a, and I'm, I'm making this very highly simplistic, and I'm not trying to. Let me give you an example. I don't know example. if I'm ready to buy into better, faster, cheaper, if, by the way, because. No, no, it's not better, that's why I'm saying it's a bad example. If I, if you came to Project Moon Hut, or any of the companies had over 20, if you came in the first day, we'd be facing certain challenges getting something set up, putting the systems in place, putting the hardware, the software, whatever it may be in place. Okay, you come on a year later, software's already in place, the decisions have been made, things are running smooth enough, you come in three years later, it's going to be different. So today, if you came into Project Moon, huh? let's say you said, David, I wanna be a part, I wanna work on this, it is a completely different experience than it was five years ago completely different because all the entities have been formed the financial models have been established the design has been put together so you come in at a different starting point and to some degree uh, some degree there are three different types of positions the first one is oftentimes let me use a, a river let's say you have to go across a river sometimes you have to teach a person to swim across the river and come back they have to do it regularly. They're gonna transport people back and forth. They need to know how to swim. Sometimes you need to get them strong enough to be able to get across the river and maybe come back occasionally. And sometimes you just throw the person on your back and say, I've already been across the river. I'm gonna take you across the river. You don't have to know how to swim. You just have to know to take us from that point forward. And you, as a leader, you have to determine what are those skill sets that you need. So what we're doing in Project Moon Hut is we create videos of experiences. We have about 114 videos. So if you, you, you're watching two of them right now, you can watch a video and hear firsthand what that condition is. And so we're trying to create the tools to have things move forward because we're coming at it very differently. And the skills that we needed two years ago, we don't need That's the same way today. I, well, I'd, Does that make I'd sense? like to, you know, I'd like to see it in action. I'd like to see um, more about how it works. It's, it's intriguing.
I, in all the companies, uh, you know, it, one of the things we had a, a screen printing company a long time ago, printing machines, and we had manually printing. And we're going back 30 years. You'd mantle, manually print. You've probably seen someone. Oh, yeah. They take a little oh, yeah. squeegee and they pull it. Okay. That was a skill. You need to know how to put the pressure on, how to put the ink in, how to lay it down, pick right. the right screen, do all sorts of things. We then bought a high-speed automatic machine that could print 14 colors and up to 800 shirts an hour. Okay, so the person who knew how to do the squeegee pulling was no longer the person we needed because that machine could print an oversized image and can do it in a timeline run by a 30 horsepower screw compressor. It was a behemoth machine. And let me tell you, they didn't have to know those old skills. They right. had to know different skills. So as you evolve as an, in an organization, you want to bring some things forward, but others are just passe. They're yesterday. Oh, Does that make no, sense a little bit? I totally get it. Yeah. Because you're there. I mean, you're there. You already know. It's already done. Right now, and we've got so many things in place that we're working on next phase development. So when it comes, the reason I was asking this question is we always wanted to come back to this title, what will it take to get back to the moon? And, you know, we've got Artemis, we've got, there's a few programs out there around the world that people are working towards. What, do, well, what's you know, your take you something on else that, that is a, is a crucial ingredient of, of success in something like this. And that's the story you have to tell to the world. And I've been, mm -hmm asked many times um, why we need to go back to the moon, because if you'll remember, it wasn't very long ago that the moon was kind of the Rodney Dangerfield of the solar system. Yeah. It yeah, doesn't of course get any it was. respect for your listeners who are too nope. young to remember Rodney Dangerfield. No, no. It, it actually, when we started Project Moon Hut, it exactly. was all about Mars. So, we had no respect. You want to go back to that moon? There's nothing there for us. Yeah. There's no value to us. It's only three days away right. in current so, technology. But don't worry about that. We we want to go to we want to go to Venus or we want to go to uh, to Pluto. I know it's not hey, a planet anymore, a but we want to go planet. there. It's a planet. Okay. Let's not get into that. I I I'm so, I, that's why I was a good push. Let me give you my three pronged answer to why the moon matters, and and there are things that I know you relate to. Um, one mm -hmm. is the science is spectacular. The moon is nothing less than the Rosetta Stone for decoding the earliest history of the inner solar system, including the history of the Earth, because the moon holds the cleanest record on its crater-scarred surface of what happened in the inner solar system, including the impact history which is probably intimately tied to the rise of life on Earth because the impactors brought with them organics and water and energy, things that you need to have to have life arise. And with the monolith, though. So right? the science is one of the most beautiful things that we get out of going back to the moon and exploring. The second thing, as, as you know, and, and you're, you're all over this, is that the moon is the place where we learn to live off planet. It is the outward bound school. And it's, as you said, it's only three days away. So we've got to learn how to live off planet while we're on the moon, only three days from home, if something goes wrong, before we go further out. 
And the third thing is that the moon is the only place in the solar system where you can stand on a surface and see the Earth as a beautiful, fragile oasis of life in the blackness of space. And that's a leap in perspective that we desperately need to reinforce if we are to be good stewards of planet Earth. So for many, many years, I've been talking about those three things as the reason to go back to the moon. Interesting. I can't wait till you watch the rest of the videos. Yeah, so anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, because, yeah, it's a, it, these, um, yes, okay. I will, I will, t I'm going, I'm going to say you did a great job. Fantastic. This is great. Is there any questions well, for me? I just want to say thank you again so much for having me and for bringing me into the, your your world. And I'm I'm already learning so much from this interaction and I would just love to see it continue. I would absolutely love it. And what I what we share with if people are working on our team, we're helping them in all different ways. And so we've got individuals from all over the world. We have five new people who are starting this week. Uh, we have companies joining us regularly. We just had what's the name? Um, Artemis Shielding. They do uh, radiation shielding. They started with us some time back they had to stop for a period of time and they contacted us just recently and said we have to be involved in this project and we've restarted up everything again on the radio on the shielding side but we get everything from patent attorneys all the way through to engineers to financial individuals um it, just the, the amount of talent that's coming this way mm -hmm. is just phenomenal so yes so you can be a part of that, uh, that ecosystem and we can work together. So with that said, what I want to do is I want to thank you for taking the time. I want to thank everybody out there who did take the time to listen in. We want to thank you for, uh, we'll hope that you learned something today that will make a difference in your life and the lives of others. Remember, the Project Moon Hut Hat Foundation is where we look to establish a box with a roof and a door on the moon through the accelerated development of an Earth and space-based ecosystem, then to turn the innovations and the paradigm-shifting thinking from the endeavor back on Earth to improve how we live on Earth for all species. We are about planet Earth. We are about accelerating innovation. We're about creating collaboration. But in the end, there will be 10 billion people on this planet by 2050. And we're, our project is to take those innovations and those new lessons that we learn from governance to you name it and turn that back to create a new future for ourselves, our children, and our children's children. So you can go to the website. Uh, about midway down on the homepage, uh, you'll see that there are three videos at the bottom. Watch one and two. Number three is where Project Moon Hut started, where it was founded. So you can hear a little historical if you'd like to from its original conception. Andy, what's the single best way to so get a hold of you? You can go to my website, which is www.andrewchaikin.com. That's A-N-D-R-E-W, no space, C-H-A-I-K-I-N, andrewchaikin.com. And just click on the contact link and type a message in the little window and it will go right to me. Fantastic. Well, We'd love to connect to you. You could reach out to me at david at moonhut.org. You can reach us at, at Project Moonhut on Twitter. You could do also at Goldsmith if you wanted to reach me. There's also LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. There's Mr. David Goldsmith if you want to catch us there. And that said, 
I'm David Goldsmith, and thank you for listening.